Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are celebrating 150 episodes in three years of Paper Team by taking a listen at some of your own favorite moments from the podcast, updates from several of our guests, and just a general look back at all the amazing things we've accomplished over the years. Honestly, I fell asleep in episode two and I woke up and now we're on 150. So <laughs> good job, Alex. Well, that's why you got to listen to this episode to play catch up with everything you just missed. <laughs> Excellent. I'll, I'll be listening in. Yeah, let's get straight to it. All right. So first up, we are going to start with some of the uh, favorite moments from the podcast. So we asked you, our listeners, to send those in. So now we're going to play for you some of uh, both our fans' favorite moments as well as our own. As well as also our guests' favorite moments. We asked some of your favorite guests and, uh, and some of our friends who are also longtime listeners of the podcast, what are their favorite moments. But first, let's dig into some of your own messages. And uh, the first one comes from longtime listener Liz Mastry, who said, well, basically everything in the 101 series is gold. An interview that stood out for me, though, is the one with Jay Holtham. I loved hearing about the experience of a fellow playwright and the whole later in life angle. Anyway, it's a specific episode that often comes to my mind. So now here is a clip of Jay discussing all these wonderful things about being a playwright and his experiences in the writer's room. Definitely there's some life experience that I get to sort of bring to the table. One of the things also about being a playwright and my sort of work, just partly about me, but also very much being a playwright, is that you wind up learning a lot about a lot of things. And so I have this weird wealth of knowledge that I get, one, by being older, by being a playwright and having sort of researched these random topics of things. And so I get to be like a utility player. I find myself in the room more than anything else and more the kind of person who's like, oh, here's this like weird random fact that I know that this is useful here. And they're like, why do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Just pick things up. And it also allows me to like, rooms are complicated. It's, you know, eight to 10 people in a small space talking a lot. And there's a lot of sort of interpersonal politics and soft skills that come into play that, again, being slightly, not that old, <laughs> older, I've had the experience to be able to use that. And I think I've been able to navigate some tricky situations in some rooms carefully because of it. And since Liz mentioned all our 101 series uh, episodes, let's take a listen to our TV staffing 101 episode, which was our 101st episode. How appropriate. How relevant. And uh, one of the tips was about having worthwhile samples for staffing and the importance of your personal network. So let's take a listen to that. The first element you got to watch out for is to have strong and fresh writing samples that match the shows you're going after. Samples are kind of the prequels to staffing season and not the Star Wars prequels, the good prequels. Meaning you shouldn't be finishing your new sample right before your reps are sending them out. You gotta have them figured out way in advance. And reps will actually try to match your samples with the shows they're sending you out for. Reps will probably strategize as to what shows you should be going after. And don't leave 
all of it on their shoulders. Be proactive, as we said earlier in this episode, about shows being produced and developed. Let them know if you think this great fantasy sample you just finished is that perfect script to send to this new Lord of the Rings writer's room. It's useful to have a range of samples that are still within your wheelhouse to give you the most opportunities when it comes to staffing. Now, if you're a comedy writer, you might have a half-hour single cam and a multi-cam script and 11-minute animated script, or even, you know, a network single cam family comedy and also a raunchy cable dramedy. But don't feel like you need to have all of your bases covered. I think it's better to have multiple strong samples in exactly the kind of stuff you want to write than maybe one okay sample in every possible kind of show you could get staffed in as a comedy writer. You know, think about what you're passionate about and what you want to spend the rest of your life working in and then concentrate your focus in that area. You know, having a niche isn't always a bad thing. As we've talked about before, it helps to brand you. The next element is to never overlook the importance of a personal network. When it comes to staffing and getting those valuable shorter meetings, the reality is that writers originate from one of maybe three places when it comes to those staffing meetings. One is reps, one is direct connections with other writers, and the last one is through the networks and the studios. All things are being equal access, getting in through the studio slash network door may be an easier hurdle to pass through given that you've already been approved by them. Personal network is used in much the same way as for any other job in this industry. People obviously tend to hire friends or former co-workers. Shorner slash EPs receive hundreds if not thousands of submissions and they will definitely not read all of them. That's also when being friendly with assistants is beneficial, as we pointed out, especially shorter assistants who are the ones reading most of the submissions and passing along the recommendations. And when it comes from the rep side, it's a lot about timing. If they're submitting your scripts too early, they'll be hitting against that production wall or that lack of opening. But if they submit it too late, they have to wait the next season cycle. We're talking a matter of days. That is the true game of musical chairs. And we received an email from Varta, who's another one of our regular listeners. And she said, you asked that we chime in with our favorite episodes for the 150th Jubilee. That's very hard. It's not an exaggeration when I say every single one of your episodes is a chapter of a textbook. I love not only the topics and the guests that you choose, but also the style of delivering all this information. It's like a shot of concentrated knowledge. You don't dilute it with any unnecessary diversions or small talk. Your banter and jokes are effortless and organic to the conversation. However, if I must pick one topic that was discussed, I think it's my duty as an immigrant to choose the episode with Des. Doyle, who's from the UK. He talked a lot about how the TV landscape looked there, and the two of you also shared a little bit about the situation in Australia and France. I found it extremely interesting to get a glimpse of how TV is made somewhere else in the world, so if you ever get a chance to interview another international writer, director, creator, please make sure to cover that, as I want to know what the industry model is like where they live, and how it intersects with Netflix and the other US-based companies which operate internationally. Thank you again for all the amazing work you do. Happy 150th episode anniversary. May you have many, many more. Wow, that is amazing letter. Thank you for sending that in. And uh, I mean, we both love discussing international landscape fairs. Uh, we're both immigrants. So that's definitely a topic that's uh, near and dear to our hearts. And I'm sure we'll be covering a lot more on that and in episodes to come. So here's a clip from Des Doyle's episode, PT122, discussing the international TV landscape. There's always a degree of appeal of like coming over here and doing something for a network here. However, I know a number of writers who've watched episodes and think that's too close to reality <laughs> for them and kind of feel like, well, you know, the sunshine's great and the money's great, but maybe not. At the moment, I think people can pick and choose a little bit. I mean, say if you're a writer in the UK at the moment and you already have a reasonably successful relationship with the BBC where you've produced, and like everything over there has to go through independent production companies as well. It's almost like third party, same as it is in Ireland. No one's commissioning writers directly, generally, 
you, you have to go through some kind of production entity. And there are a lot of very successful production companies, uh, both in Ireland and the UK, where people may feel happy enough. At the same time, I've never met a writer yet who doesn't have an idea in the back of their head that they think, man, this would be awesome on HBO yeah. or, you know, something like that, you know. I would not expect any kind of a mass exodus, especially now when they're watching Netflix going around Europe, making exclusive deals with showrunners in each territory and saying, no, I will actually fund you where you are and, and doing what you want. Here, there is a, an actual career track that you can do in a career progression that you can kind of see. I'm not saying it's easy to get in or start off here either, but there is a ladder to a certain extent. Back home, there isn't of any sort. So everyone is trying to scramble around doing whatever they can whether that's like writing soap opera to pay the bills while they work on a feature script or a tv pilot that they're hoping to try and sell somewhere else uh, i know people who are writing comics to try and you know keep them going one of the new markets that has emerged over the last couple of years there because of the huge success of animation companies like brown bag is a lot of disney animated shows are being done there so there is a way in potentially for writers there that they can get some kind of tv credits behind them but in terms of real high-end drama in the Irish market, there's only ever two or three shows made a year. And on both of the previous ones that I'm aware of, most of the writing has been done by one to two people. So it's very difficult. That's why, in a weird kind of a way, up until recently, a lot of writers have focused on feature. Because at least there, there is development money that you can find. There is potentially a route to getting a film made that looks a little easier than trying to get TV made. Now, that gear has shifted over the last year or two because TV has just become so heavily focused. But it's certainly something that I'm trying to push. Because basically, if, if you're a writer in Ireland and, and the UK to a certain extent, there's about six doors that you can knock on mm -hmm. in terms of broadcasters that you can go to. But I'm trying to refocus people and say, no, television is now an entirely global market. So look at everywhere else that you can possibly go. You don't just have to knock on those six doors. And to be honest with you, three of those doors are a waste of your time knocking on because they hardly have money to make anything. So yeah, it, it, it can be very frustrating, but breakthroughs are starting to happen. And I think like, for example, John Carney, who's a very successful Irish writer-director who did Sing Street and stuff like that, he now has a show with uh, Amazon Prime called Modern Love that just attached to Anne Hathaway and stuff as a star. So there are people that are making it happen, and that's the door-opening event as well for other people to kind of follow through behind. Next, we received a message from Olivia Meredith, who, amongst many people, really enjoyed Latoya's episode. And uh, she said, I just listened to Latoya Morgan's interview with Paper Team. I found your experience of Latoya's experience and taste super inspiring. So here now is a clip from the very popular Latoya Morgan episode called Building Your Career as a TV Writer. That's PT111 on the importance of knowing what you're bringing to a writer's room as a new writer on how to adapt your voice to the tone of the show and the process of breaking TV stories. I just think you have to know what you do. You know, like some people are structure people. Some people are character writers. If you know that from the outset, great. And you can really lean into those things when you're in the writer's room. Other people don't know. Personally, I knew that I was good at writing characters, but I knew the one thing that I did and I loved just because I'm a geek. I love research. So I was like, I can go from place to place because I'm going to read every book. I'm going to watch every movie. I'm going to do my due diligence in order to be able to have something to say at the table because I was always, and I feel like every writer should be, 
absolutely terrified to have nothing to contribute at the table. So uh, whatever you can do to cover your bases in that way, I think will make you an effective writer no matter what. So every writer obviously has their own voice and style and you know tone that they like to, to write in. How do you go about adapting that for each individual show you work on? You know, you've worked over a, a wide variety of tones on shows. So The only thing that you can do for that is to just absorb the scripts and absorb the style. And so every show has a different style and, you know, some people like just even the layout of how the scripts are written. Some people are like, if you write paragraphs over four sentences, people freak out, you know, like the showrunner's like, I don't like that. You know, sometimes the tone of the show, there's a lot of profanity or just in the way that it's written on the page. So you have to adapt that. You have to absorb that. So the only way to do that is read a bunch of scripts once you get there and then just do your best to try to match the voice. And once you're starting out, just know you're not going to get it 100%. So just go in with that <laughs> and know that it's okay. It's going to be fine. And that is what the showrunner is there for. So you get it as far, you get it to the 50-yard line, you get it down to the 20 if you can. And then the showrunner is going to take it into the end zone, you know? And I think that a lot of writers, you know, really get a lot of anxiety about that, but know that the showrunner will see your effort on the page. Yeah, you're the staff writer. You're not the showrunner. Yes, so exactly. Big gap there. Yeah. So obviously, you've worked with some incredible showrunners. What are the different ways you've seen uh, stories being broken in those different rooms? I think the biggest difference is the amount of detail that the stories are broken. So when I was on Shameless, there was breaking of episodes, but I would say it was very loose. So we would have like our our blue skies boards. We would have them, you know, broken down by episode. And then within the episode, there would be bullet points of what the story ideas were. And I'm talking like seven bullet points for <laughs> an entire episode. So that was very loose. And then, you know, working with Jason Kadams or Craig Silverstein, we had a lot more detail. So it was like by scene. This is what is in each scene. These are color coded. You know, it was like, <laughs> so I think having both of those tools is great because, you know, with John, he really wanted the writers to find the story. So it was like really up to you, whatever you wanted to be in there. He was completely fine with that. And with that came a lot of table work together with the other writers. So we would read all the scripts. We would give notes to each other. So it was a really different process versus everyone all together breaking each piece at once. So both of them are really effective and are great for story, um, but they're just different. Do you have your own sort of preferred way of breaking story, especially when you're working on your own projects or pilots? I think I'm a little in between. You know, I... Uh, I while I love the seven bullet point version, um, I I could not really. F I'm really big on outlines, so that does not fill an outline, and so I try to break it with a little bit more detail. And I think it's really great to color code. I know that's like cheesy, but it's great to see what color is your lead. You know, you have your B storyline, your C storyline. I am very Type A, so I like that. Um, <laughs> it's good. You got to be organized. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not seeing enough green on this board. Like, what, <laughs> what do I do? You know. 
Yeah, that was such a great episode, and I know a lot of people love that. And obviously, since then, uh, Latoya has gone on, and we've seen uh, her incredible mentorship program coming out through AMC and all of the fantastic projects coming through that. So um, things just keep getting better on that front. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm hopeful that at some point we're going to be bringing back some of those guests to talk about all the amazing efforts they've put in and uh, all the changes they've made to not just uh, the TV running landscape, but you know the guild and the ability to reach out to people and sort of uh, track that evolution of access that we keep talking about. So pretty excited to hear more about that. Now, another episode that was mentioned as a favorite uh, was actually brought up by Ben Blacker of the Writer's Panel podcast. He tweeted at us shortly after Comic-Con that he was listening to our Comedy versus Drama 2 Blurred Lines episode on his drive back from San Diego. And he said that it distills a lot of the interesting conversations that I've been having both on the Writer's Panel with friends uh, about not defining ourselves as writers anymore in terms of, you know, comedy and drama. So here's a clip where we talk about our approaches to comedy versus drama, the blending of formats, and all of the experience we've had with these new kind of blurred lines between formats and genres and our own writing and staffing experiences. And this is all from PT143. I had always just seen myself as a comedy writer. I mean, I guess at one point I thought I wanted to do drama early on. And then once I started writing comedy, I realized how much I loved it and I wanted to stay in that lane. And I, I never tried to straddle those lanes. I was like, I love animation. I love comedy. This is what I'm going to do. And then I got staffed in the final space room. And what was really interesting about that is that it's a half hour animated comedy. However, it's still very heavily serialized. There's actually a lot of heart to it and a lot of sort of drama within that. And when we were writing it, we were actually thinking about it more as a sci-fi in the way that, you know, classic Star Trek or that kind of thing is and, and writing it and structuring it in that way. And then just kind of making it funny on top. We weren't looking at it as here's an episode of a sitcom and then throwing some sci-fi elements in to kind of make it like that. So I think that it really helped me grow as a writer and open my kind of perspectives towards, oh, just because we're in a half hour comedy, it doesn't have to be family guy. It can still have serialization. It can still have drama and it can still have a lot of heart to it. I've kind of incorporated that a little bit more into my writing and taking that in as even within a format, you can still branch out and explore different areas tonally and dramatically. That's a pretty interesting point in the idea that even though you may be in this half hour format, that that's not really a jail. You can still explore those different elements like serialization, science fiction, all these different pieces that exist most times, to be fair, in a trauma spectrum, but you can incorporate them within your half hour. So I think a lot of people felt, especially when they're starting out, the half hour versus one hour debate feels very limiting. It's like, okay, I only have 30 pages. What does that mean? I can't really express my creativity. I'm not a real writer, whatever that means. Well, the reality is that you're still bound when you're a TV writer by those rules. <laughs> they don't go out the window just because you're staffed on the show. In fact, it's just the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. The network is going to come down on you to fit those things in the squares. Now, with all that said, I think uh, that's a great point that you just said about expressing yourself within those boundaries and, and sort of discovering new ways of exploring that format. And I think that's a great change and why it's not all negative to have those blending formats and genres. And that's because you can still explore those different things and add different elements from different genres. Yeah. And those kind of boundaries and limitations will breed creativity. Telling an entire kind of sci-fi planet of the week arc or whatever within a half hour space and still making it funny is is challenging, but it's also fun. And it encourages you to kind of come up with new ideas and innovate because you don't have all that room. And like, how are we going to get all this characterization and character arcs fit within this when we have all this action and that sort of thing? So yeah, exactly like Alex said, don't let it 
the format feel like it's a limitation to you. It's simply just kind of like the box within you get to play and the, all the tools are still there and available. It's like a great sandbox. Yeah, on my end, I can't really say that I've been in a one hour room where there's a bunch of comedy people or it was thought more as a comedic light show because that's not the reality of most dramas, even to this day. And most of them are very serious, uh, you know, based, grounded or sci-fi genre. Now, in terms of my own writing, I will say that I recently started writing a half hour dramedy for the first time. Every sample I've written so far in terms of TV have all been one hour, 60-ish pages. This was the very first half hour, which to be fair, could still evolve into one hour as we speak. But my belief is based on the acts, the action, the characters, the dialogue, and everything being set up as it stands, it's going to stay as a half hour. And what really pushed me in that direction was first Barry, to be honest. Barry was sort of a game changer, especially for me, of seeing a half hour that could bring the drama and the thrilling element of something like Breaking Bad, which is very rare to see, especially in a half hour. And the second part is just based on the content of what I'm writing about, it just made the most sense because it's not a high concept show. It's very character-based and it's also very dialogue-based. It's very low-key kind of like in treatment. In treatment is a half-hour piece and it's also very dialogue-driven and that's also very dramatic as well. Uh, and third example of something that's adapted from another format that's keeping that half-hour element to it. Now, in terms of what I'm achieving with that is, well, firstly, it's changing the way I think about stories. In the same way that, Nick, you just brought up the you know the sci-fi and serialization element, I'm thinking about it more on, okay, how can I convey the this amount of character development and this amount of dialogue and this amount of story in a very limited format while still having fun and being entertaining in a way that in a one hour, you have so much exposition to do, I feel like, whether in a half hour, it's just you got to get to it right now. You just got to talk it out and you got to be, well, funny, not in my case, but generally speaking. Speaking, you got to be active and interesting in a very unique way. And I think that's probably the best thing about this for me is I only have so much real estate. So every single scene really matters to a point where even in a one hour, I think you do get lost in the woods sometimes establishing set pieces or establishing uh, exposition or different uh, turn of events on a story level. Whereas this is very character driven and, and grounded and limited in a way that's really freeing. Right. Having more pages gives you more rope to hang yourself with. <laughs> we also got an email from Max Weisberg who said, Hey guys, thanks so much for your podcast that answered the question of mistakes in TV writing. And uh, thank you for the shout out. I would have loved to hear my full name, but that's because I'm vain. Well, I just said it. <laughs> so uh, he continued saying, looking forward to the continuation of Mistakes series. And I would definitely nominate that episode for the best podcast of the last 150. Not just because I suggested it, but because I learned so much from hearing other people's mistakes that I recognize in my own writing. And so you can take a listen to common mistakes to avoid in your TV scripts. That is PT148. And another message that we received was from Clint Williams, who emailed us saying, gentlemen, I would like to suggest you review PT90 for your highlights episode. And not just because he said nice things about me. That episode was the debut of the PBT's critics and would remind listeners of the contest and the feedback provided and, uh, and such. Plus, it gives you an opportunity to replay clips of you saying nice things about my pilot. Well, uh, if you want to hear our feedback on Clint's pilot and our very 
very first PaperD feedback session, well, you can take a listen to our PT90 episode. That's 60 episodes ago. And uh, that episode is incidentally called Rewriting Your TV Script. So you will not only get an awesome first PPT is feedback session, but a lot of advice on rewriting your TV script. And we've actually come a long way. I did the math and we've reviewed, believe it or not, Nick, at least 40 teasers so far. Damn. Well, I'm glad that we've uh, managed to find some very talented people from that, that pool and we'll continue to do so. And on that note, if you would like to submit your teasers to our paper tease feedback session, you can always do so at paperteam.co slash teaser. And uh, as always, you can send any uh, any teaser of TV pilots, not features, TV pilots only, any genre, any format, one hour, half hour, comedy, drama, whatever it is, as long as it is uh, eight pages and under. Once again, that's paperteam.co slash teaser. Now, some of our most successful episodes of the year have been from our Inside the TV Writing Program series. We've received countless messages sharing how useful they have been, not only for people applying to the programs, but honestly for writers of all levels. Um, one of the people who mentioned this was a listener, Anthony McBride, who said, I like the writing program episodes because they were very insightful and informative. Uh, and also Alyssa Rivas, another listener, says the fellowship episodes are amazing and extremely helpful. So now we're going to go and play a little clip from each of those different episodes, ABC, CBS, NBC, Warner Brothers, and Fox, each answering the same question about what they felt the unique strengths of their particular program was. So here is ABC with Christy Shuden. What do you see as the unique strength of your program that sets it apart from all the others? First of all, we're paid. <laughs> <laughs> the program runs for 12 months. Most of the other programs in town, they're by weeks or they're evening programs. But ours runs for 12 months and we're a paid program. And that also includes Disney benefits because you're basically brought on as an employee of the company. So you'll come into the program, you get the orientation, you get the medical benefits, the Disney silver pass. <laughs> and uh, then what we do is we workshop you every day. We're in there working on your script. We're working on any projects that you had that you could be potential development. We are working on your branding, which is incredibly important. That's working on that one minute pitch that we will use repeatedly for the rest of your career, possibly. So we are constantly working at probably the first three to four weeks is really diving in heavy because the staffing season is right around the corner once they start the program. All right. Now here is a clip from the CBS episode with Jeannie Mao. The strength, I think, is that we're looking at the long game. We're looking at the career building long game. We want writers to be content creators. We want them to have a seat at the table. And that's the component of what we fundamentally believe in, in terms of the methods of what we teach. So while it's great that we staff you and all that wonderful thing, it's about the long game. Because there are people who have been in our program that didn't staff the year they were in, but staff subsequent years, and we've helped them get staffed. But it's really about the long game. Because at the end of the day, if you have a seat at the table when you are a content creator, you can influence who gets hired, what stories to tell, what cast are cast, what your crew looks like, who's your producer, director, what directors you're hiring. So it's the bigger picture of being more influential down the road as opposed to just the soldier, one of many staff and jumping from staff. We want showrunners. We want to produce. It's a showrunner producer program. And our very own guest, Michael Masukowa, who's a longtime listener of the podcast, absolutely loved all the episodes. And he especially highlighted the NBC Karen Horn episode. So here's a clip from NBC and Karen Horn. All the programs are 
good. And the thing, if even the instruction is not great, the exposure is phenomenal. So I know the writers in the ABC program and the CBS program and HBO's program and Warner Brothers programs, and they know our writers too. So the exposure is great. And if that alone is what you get out of it, it's worth it. Once you get in the program, I think the good thing about what we do also is like I said, we're consistently growing our program. Um, we always, uh, look for the best in other programs. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. We should be doing that in writers on the verge. And we, we do that. Once you get in, we do have two components to the program. Um, one is the writing, which, as I said earlier, is with Jen Grisanti, who is our writer instructor for writers on the verge and myself. I like to think that we're the yin and the yang. She's very nice and I'm very honest. So, <laughs> um, so we work really well together. And also my uh, the other executives on my team are there as well. And once you get in, you have to pitch us about five or five to eight ideas for, and this has changed recently within the last couple of years. This is what we've changed with the program. So our goal is to get you to write an amazing original. And by doing that, we have you pitch about eight uh, outlines, um, uh, eight ideas to us. And then you'll go to outline on two of those ideas. And then you'll go to, to script on one of them. And oftentimes, the reason we did this with two outlines is because we found that oftentimes some of the writers would get into their script and it just wasn't working. And so what they can do is just go to their other outline and do that. And so at the end of this writing process, you have a really great original and a really good outline to help you for your next original. So um, we do that. We table our scripts. We bring in actors that we work with from some of our in front of the camera efforts. And we do table reads for the script. And our writers are mentored with our executives in addition to us. And that's the writing part of it. The business part of it, um, we do mock showrunners meetings. We have branding workshops. We have speed networking where they meet the different uh, executives throughout the network in the studio and also our cable partners. We do insights where we have uh, different writers on the verge members who come back and talk to them about their process. We have different showrunners and executive who come in. Like we do as much as we can to really get them, uh, them FaceTime with people in the industry. And also uh, we do a pitch school before they pitch to us. We do a pitch school so they can figure out how to pitch better. Anyway, so we do all that stuff to help the writers just, you know, just be the most well-rounded. And I will say that there's never been an instance where a writer from our program has ever crashed on a set and mm -hmm. not done well in a room. So, okay. And here's a segment from uh, the WB program with Rebecca Windsor. I think the things that set us apart, I mean, I believe strongly in just who we select and we have great speakers and lecturers covering a variety of topics, which we can get into in a second that I think, like I said, our goal is really to make them the most well-rounded writers so that when they get their first job, they know everything they need to know. And it's a very rigorous experience. It's a little bit, you know, like boot camp at times. And we don't go easy on them. We do push them because we need to get them ready. And we also, I think one of the things that's made us so successful over the years and kind of garnered us such a great reputation is just we couldn't do it without the support of the studio. That's the executives and that's all of our showrunners because if they didn't want to hire our people, then it would be pushing a rock up a hill. It's a great feeling that I get a lot of incoming calls during staffing season. Hey, who do you have? As opposed to me reaching out and being like, please, please take one of our writers, you know? <laughs> and I think as 
alumni have been staffed and have become rock stars and have ascended the ranks to the point that many of them are showrunners and having overall deals and stuff like that themselves. But it makes it much more likely for a showrunner who has hired people the last two years who have been fantastic to come back and say, oh, I know I'm going to get someone fantastic from you. So I'm going to keep doing it. So it's this domino effect that I think helps keep us so successful and has launched so many careers. And last but not least, at least so far, is a clip from Fox and Mara Griffin. We only have eight writers. We used to have 10, and I think that can get a little unwieldy when you have a lot of people in a room, just because you want to sort of give more individualized attention. And we're not 30 people running these programs, right? And we still have alumni that we have to deal with. So it's much better if it's a smaller cohort. Also, one of the things that I did was everybody has an executive mentor. So there's someone who becomes an advocate for you that's within the Fox system. And they also are kind of on the ground when it comes to staffing, when it comes to connecting you to showrunners, who can be advocates for you for agents. We've had probably two of our writers get agents through their executive mentor, right? Because they also now become champions of them outside of our system as well. So that to me is a very unique thing. And then also everybody gets a professional coach. So we had a coaching system for our writers as well as our director's lab too. Um, and that's something that I introduced, something that I also brought over from Sundance when I ran the women's initiative. We had a donor who was really big on coaching and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal until I experienced it and saw the change that it makes. Because I think a lot of times as writers, you sort of because you feel alone, because you don't really have that sort of space to really think about how do you navigate this space just on your own, the coach is really there to sort of help with that. And a professional coach is not therapy at all, right? So what we had was someone who really focused on that heart-mind connection, doing meditation. When you're about to go into a interview space, how do you sort of like center yourself, make sure that you're ready to get into these spaces, also because a lot of times you're dealing with diversity and you're dealing sometimes with hostile situations. It's how do you sort of maintain your equilibrium while you're dealing in these situations so you know how to sort of be your best self in these places. So, and also how to sort of, how do you um, navigate these spaces and keep your sanity? Because sometimes it can make you a little crazy. That's sort of where our professional coaching comes in. We had such a great experience interviewing all of those uh, amazing executives. These programs are so important to aspiring writers and people in the industry, giving them that level of access. And, you know, we felt very lucky to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with them and kind of spread that access out even more in these uh, digestible episodes that people can tune in and learn everything they need to know about the programs. So hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And we even had uh, some of our own little success stories beyond, I'm sure, many of our listeners going deep into the programs. We actually also had one of our listeners post about how he said, found out last night that I am in the top 6% for the NBC's Writers on the Verge writing program. I'm listening to the Paper Team podcast episode PT132 while I proofread my original pilot. So thank you, Paper Team. Well, thank you for listening to us and finding the value in uh, in our content. And we cannot wait, honestly, to dig deeper into other TV writing programs because that's really just the start. And speaking of TV writing programs, in a way, uh, there is of <laughs> course the uh, the famous Paper Team mentorship uh, that we you know started up using um, you know a writer that we had found through the Paper Team submission process, and that was Paul Chang. And obviously, he's gone on to great success since then, getting a manager, getting staffed, and you know, unfortunately, we didn't get to quite finish our series with. Him, but we will be, you know, looking to redo that again in the future. But in the meantime, we wanted to take a look back at some of the episodes featuring Paul and the mentorship process and see what we can learn from those. That's right. And uh, to begin, we are going to 
play a clip from PT128, which was Paul's initial pitch when he came to us pitching his uh, original pilot, Mid-Death Crisis. This was the first time we had heard the pitch altogether, and uh, I believe this probably is Paul's first time pitching that project to anyone. So here's the pitch of Mid-Death Crisis. So before I moved to LA, I lived in New York, and for several years, I worked at a job that I hated. It was soul crushing, it was stressful, and above all, it felt meaningless. And talking to my friends at the time, I realized that that feeling can come from any kind of job. So for me, it was a corporate job, but it can come from working in retail or food service or politics or just the never-ending treadmill of the gig economy. That feeling of having the life force sucked out of you by your job, of feeling a little bit dead inside, it's the same. And so this is a show about that feeling and how finding something that sparks a sense of purpose can give you a new lease on life. So with that said, Mid-Death Crisis is a half-hour dark comedy about literal death, a grim reaper named Mo. When we meet Mo, she's depressed and firmly in the midst of a midlife crisis because she hates her job. She used to take pride in bringing death and ferrying souls, but now, for the first time in millennia, she feels burned out and sick of it all. She wants out. But the thing is, there is no out. She's stuck in this job forever. So in the pilot, Mo finds herself at a motivational seminar when she's assigned to ferry the soul of a man who dies of a heart attack. While there, she overhears an inspirational speech given by the charismatic motivational speaker. Think Tony Robbins, except she's a five foot four Latina woman named Tina. And something about that speech moves Mo, ignites a spark of curiosity that grows into a steady flame over the course of the pilot, at the end of which she decides to complete the life affirming motivational program, thereby kicking off the series. Mid-Death Crisis will follow her on that journey. In short, this is a show about death, learning what it's like to feel alive. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the world of the show. So it's set in a version of New York that resembles our own. There's hot dog vendors on street corners, steam coming out of manhole covers, and of course, that smell. But also, Grim Reapers walk the earth among us. They look like normal people, not skeletons in dark cloaks. And by the way, Mo appears as a middle-aged Asian woman. Now, Reapers have two responsibilities, to bring death and to ferry souls to the underworld. They bring death by touching people, skin-to-skin -skin contact, after which the person dies in 24 hours. As a result, for Mo and other Reapers, intimacy is out of the question, which is one of the reasons Mo has become isolated and lonely over the years. Also, these days, ferrying souls looks more like Ubering souls. <laughs> Reapers use an Uber-like app, which tells them where their next soul pickup will be. After pickup, they drive the soul to one of the many portals to the underworld scattered across Earth. For Mo, the closest portal is located in a noodle restaurant in Queens. Which leads us to the bureaucracy of death. As the world population has grown, the underworld has had to become increasingly corporate to keep up with the high volume of souls. Gone are the days of death riding in on a black-winged horse and a golden carriage made of skulls looking like a badass. Nobody's got time for that. These days, it's all about efficiency and hitting your numbers. And don't even get Mo started on maintaining a high star rating average for her trips. Which is all to say, Mo's job sucks. It's boring, it's stressful, it's a grind. So, the main characters. So we've met Mo, who's a reaper who looks like a middle-aged Asian woman, but has been around since the dawn of humanity. At the start of the show, she's cynical, jaded, and depressed. As the series progresses, she becomes increasingly invested in the motivational program. For the first time in a long time, she feels happy and alive. And at the end of the first season, she decides she wants to become a motivational trainer herself. Tina, the charismatic founder of the motivational program, which is called Zest. And yes, that's Zest with an exclamation mark. She is ambition personified. 
At the start of the season, her dream is to become as influential and successful as Tony Robbins and help people unlock their personal potential because of her own difficult childhood, which she managed to overcome. Over the course of the series, her almost maniacal desire to help people will evolve into a darker tendency, the desire to control. Through Tina, we'll get a glimpse of the dark side of motivational programs and how some of them toe the line between support group and cult. As Mo finds the light, Tina will descend into darkness. Fred is an earnest and bumbling middle-aged seminar attendee who quickly develops a crush on Mo, and she finds herself resisting a sneaking suspicion that the feeling might be mutual. As the series progresses, Mo will find it harder and harder to keep Fred at arm's length because of her growing feelings of affection. And finally, Mother Time, the boss of all Reapers. She recently took over the underworld from Father Time and has something to prove. She expects all the Reapers to hit their numbers and has no qualms about banishing them to purgatory if they fail to deliver. And so the pilot in broad strokes. We start off by seeing Mo performing her Reaper duties and are introduced to the world of the show. She picks up the soul of a guy who has drunkenly fallen off the roof of a Brooklyn brownstone. In the back of Moe's beat-up Camry, the guy has a full-on existential crisis, grappling with his death and questioning whether he lived his life to the fullest. But it's clear that for Moe, this is just another tedious day at work, especially when she has to clean up the guy's vomit later that night. When Moe receives a low star rating from the soul, she's accosted by her boss, Mother Time, who tells her that if she doesn't raise her average rating soon, she'll be banished to purgatory. In her tiny apartment, Mo receives a visit from her friend and fellow Reaper, Gerald, who asks her to pick up one of his souls the next day as a favor. Mo begrudgingly agrees and so finds herself at the motivational seminar the next day as she searches for the soul. While there, she gets swept up in Tina's inspirational speech, which jolts something deep within her. Unable to stop thinking about the experience over the next few days, she shirks some of her Reaper duties to go back to the seminar, where Tina challenges the attendees to get out of their comfort zone and do something crazy they would normally never do. Moe's next assignment is to pick up a suicidal man, and with Tina's words ringing in her ears, she engages him and convinces him not to kill himself. This first taste of autonomy and rebellion gives Mo a huge rush. Still riding on that high, Mo signs up for the 10-week motivational seminar as Gerald bursts into her apartment. He explains that Mo convincing the man not to kill himself has triggered a chain reaction that they have to fix before Mother Time finds out. And with that, the pilot of Mid-Death Crisis comes to an end. And so to wrap up with the engine of the show, each episode, Mo will struggle and fail to fulfill both the obligations of the motivational program and her Reaper responsibilities. Yeah, that was a great pitch for the show. And then the next episode we did with Paul was PT-134, which was the beat sheet episode for Mid-Death Crisis. And here's a clip where we discuss how to kind of show the stakes of your story in a visual and cinematic way. Just on a super minor like execution note in one of the scenes, right up top in Act 1 where Mo goes to meet with Mother Time, Mother Time mentions that she just sent a Reaper to Purgatory for bad ratings. I just felt it would be much better for us to see that happen. And, you know, maybe it's Mo is waiting outside in the waiting room and we overhear this conversation between Mother Time and another Reaper. And it goes badly, obviously, because he got a bad rating. And then we see, you know, a flash of light or flames or heat or screams under the door as he's sent away. And then Mother Time opens up the door with a smile and is like, next, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like it kind of like ups the stakes a little bit and requires less direct exposition and her telling her, oh, I just did this and this is why it's bad. And, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's also the real estate that I mentioned before where you have the moment where you see what can happen, the, sort of the worst case scenario i think that scene is definitely that definitely one little plot question i had is what challenge 
Tina gives them to do? Uh, because I do like the idea that Tina challenges the attendees to get out of their comfort zone, but I, I do want something more proactive or, or at least a specific that she asks them to do. And then we see Mo do it because maybe like we don't think she's going to be doing it because she doesn't care about the seminar and then she does it. And that way, again, it helps frame Mo's change as a character and evolution and acceptance of the seminar as a concept. Right. And that's the engine of the show too, as you touched on last time, every week there's a challenge from her to go do this in the world. So I think we want to make sure we got that in the pilot. Yeah. So I was thinking that as like Mo convincing Harriet to not kill herself, that is the thing that that's like her kind of scaring yourself. Do you, are you saying that there so, should be something different? No, I'm saying is to that point, yeah. to that exact point. I feel like you should frame it then. It should be like that pitch would be Tina saying, strike a conversation with a total stranger. That oh, conversation is it. her talking to Harriet, thereby saving Harriet. I mean, it could just be the find your point on the y-axis or whatever. And so she helps Harriet find her point on the y-axis and in doing so finds her, you know, that kind of thing. Like you need, you need that like challenge that she issues yeah. to them. My, my point was Got that it. you need something specific. It can be tied to what is already there. It's just something specific yeah. rather than abstract. Get out of your comfort zone. Then we took a look at Paul's outline for his original pilot, Mid-Death Crisis, in our episode PT-138. So here's a clip of us discussing and giving feedback on the structure of his outline and pilot. One of the things that we spoke about last time were the act breaks. I know that you spent some time sort of working on those, and also there were some, some changes in the story that required those to be different now. So... It, just for those who aren't familiar, the act one break is essentially uh, Mo showing up and seeing this motivational seminar and then hearing people yelling inside. And that's where the act ends. In act two, it's the moment where she talks Fred out of killing himself. And so she's failed her task and, and messed up this whole system. And then act three, uh, the end of the whole thing is that in doing all of this, that she's caused this butterfly effect with the world that is going to throw things out of whack. And the blame is coming down on the reapers that she was doing the favor for. Uh, so everyone's familiar with what those act breaks are. What were your thoughts on those breaks, Alex? Yeah, I feel like even though I appreciate that you've been uh, working on those act outs, I feel like they're still a bit uh, passive, especially mm -hmm. if you look at something like the first act where you have Mo hearing people yell. Uh, I didn't feel that was very active as an act out. The seminar itself could be the act out. You have a lot of content at the top of the second act that could uh, be a better act out. For example, Mo being called on stage or Mo interacting with Jane mm. or more in interacting with Tina, some, some sort of a more active uh, obstacle than her hearing people yell. Yeah, that was my thought as well. I think that you could just end it as she walks in and, you know, the spotlight ends up on her or, you know, this kind of thing happens. It's something more active that involves Mo rather than just kind of, oh, here's a thing. And then the act ends and we come back from the act break. I think every act break, you really want it to surprise you or shock you or be like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And I think that just kind of tweaking that that point a little bit into seeing our first glimpse of the seminar and how intense it is and the fact that Mo's going to get caught up in it, um, I think would be a good way to go. All right. Well, if you want to know what Paul's up to these days, you can tune in to our PT-147 to get an update on his experience of being a staff writer in the room for the first time. And also, we're going to be giving some ongoing updates with Paul exclusively through our Patreon. So if you want to listen to those, log on to patreon.com and support us there at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And those are past and present updates, even during the mentorship process. Now, let's dig into some of the favorite moments from our our guests, because uh, believe it or not, a lot of our guests do love our podcast as well. And let's begin with Paul. It's been so long since we talked about him. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder how he's doing. Let's listen in on what he recommends. Hey guys, here are a few of my favorite episodes. 
So I loved all the recent episodes with the head of the network fellowships. I thought those gave a great insight into what those fellowships are looking for from an applications perspective. Along similar lines, I really loved PT85. I listened to that quite a few times. That was the one with the past fellowship recipients. And that one gives a great look into what you actually do once you get into those fellowships. Really liked PT141 about performing in and out of the writer's room. I thought that it had some great tips on how to succeed in the room. I always thought PT62 was really helpful about generals and staffing. That's a good intro into what to expect in a meeting. Another one was PT75, the one about putting yourself out there. So that one actually inspired me to create a Twitter account, uh, which has in turn been a great way to meet other writers um, and to get a lot of great advice because there are a lot of um, really experienced upper level writers who uh, give out a lot of great tips and, and um, you know, career advice on there. So Twitter has been a really good resource. And I think that episode also covers um, building your personal brand, you know, not just online, but, you know, in in person as well, more generally. And I thought that, you know, that's a really important thing for writers. Uh, So yeah, I really like that episode. And then PT117 about building an engine for your show. Really like that episode. I think it's really helpful in thinking about how to move beyond just writing a pilot. Um, how is this an actual show with legs? And that is really important to think about as you get into writing Bibles and that sort of thing. Well, thank you, Paul, for all these amazing recommendations. And uh, it's actually an awesome list, and you can uh, find all those episodes in our show notes. But for now, enjoy a clip from PT75, the Putting Yourself Out There episode, all about Twitter and personal branding online. Social media and online presence need to be part of the arsenal you use to put yourself out there. And by online presence, we don't just mean self-promotion, right? Don't spam people with links to your YouTube web series that nobody cares about. This is about essentially self-expression. Be entertaining or engaging or informative. So if you're in half hours of comedy, you kind of have no excuse not to have a Twitter or some kind of social media account to share your funny stories. If you're a drama guy or gal, the reality is a bit different since translating your creative skills isn't as clear cut as being funny, but there are other ways of doing it. Yeah, like Alex says, if you're a comedy writer, you should be funny. Post jokes and funny observations every day on Twitter and Facebook. Try out material. There's an app called Pitch that Funny or Die made, and you can sort of post funny responses to prompts. Like there was one, what's something you could say both at your high school reunion and after sex? And you can post things like, uh, what was your name again? Or, you know, things like that. And you can kind of get practice in telling jokes that way. Yeah, again, I don't know with drama writers, maybe it's just about kind of putting yourself out there and making, opening up conversations about other material. Like, you know, oh, I just watched this episode of Black Mirror. What did you guys think about this? Or like, honestly, like commenting on things and, and exploring. I definitely agree that part of it is essentially showing your interest in other people's work, especially if you're in the genre sphere. There's plenty of room for conversation, either on message boards, Reddit, Twitter, whatever the case may be. And let's say you do have those jokes that you want to send on Twitter, but maybe you're too busy to do that. Well, now you have apps and other softwares to help you schedule those tweets or make it more linear in the outcome. So you can schedule tweets. For example, you've got Buffer, Hootsuite. There's a bunch of other apps and softwares that you can use to help your social media presence and make it feel more lively. And on Twitter as well, even if you're not putting out your own jokes and tweets and stuff, you can be replying to other people's things and having these conversations and interactions and chains of, of threads. And then that way you are interacting with people and your stuff is popping up on people's timelines and all that kind of thing. Like just be active and engaged in community. And another one Paul mentioned that we wanted to highlight was PT117 TV Formula 101. So here's a small snippet where we talk about coming up with an engine for your TV show. 
When coming up with an engine, the key is really to understand where that conflict is coming from. Uh, is it some kind of event that happens to my characters, like patients that need to be fixed, or a day that keeps resetting, like Daybreak with Ty Diggs? Anyone remember that besides I, myself? I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was on NBC. Uh, but if it is not an event, then the conflict needs to stem from other characters bumping against each other, like the two cops you just mentioned, with conflicting worldviews. Right. And aside from having that inherent conflict in those story elements, whether they be characters or otherwise, an engine should always be two things. One, repeatable, and two, sustainable. It needs to have the ability to be applied over and over again as a template for story in your show while still feeling different every time and without wearing thin or running out of good ideas. If you can't reel off 10 or 15 episode ideas off the top of your head just based on what you know the show's about and the elements around it, how do you expect a writer's room to sit down and come up with 100? This is what producers and studios and networks are looking for. It's a show that, you know, quote unquote, has legs. Yeah, and again, just because it is a formula and repeatable doesn't mean it is cliched or trite television. We've spent the entire episode so far demystifying that notion. Every show, including highly serialized ones that you may think of as unique, have a formula. That's the way stories work and TV writers work. No episode exists in vacuum and they build on top of each other. Another one of our guests who sent in recommendations was our great friend Julia Yorks from the, the Finding Stability as a Nascent TV Writer episode, that's PT120. So let's listen on what Julia said. So I've been an avid listener of the Paper Team podcast for a while now, and while I usually hate podcast live shows, I loved the paper team's evening in the writer's room podcast. I was actually in the audience for the live show, which was very fun. And I think my favorite panel was the drama panel. I love to retell the story of, I believe it was Allison Shapker who got her first job when she hit either a showrunner or a producer with her car on a lot. And so uh, it's just the most epic how I got my first job story that I have ever heard. So thank you for the Paper Team podcast for sharing that anecdote with me. Thank you to New York for the sounds of traffic behind Julia there. <laughs> well, on that note, let's uh, let's listen to that clip from our PT 100th episode. Actually, fun fact, it wasn't Alison Shacker. It was Chris Levinson who hit someone with a car. But uh, let's listen to her retelling of that amazing anecdote. I mean, I think we've all hit someone with our car yeah. and gotten a job from it. So that's, uh, I think, the first line in your resume, right? Always. Yeah. This will really assist everyone. In um, I got my first job because I hit someone with my car. <laughs> Not kidding. I was two months out of college. Um, I had no intention of writing for television. Uh, I was going to be a food critic. I was moving to New York, and I had lunch scheduled with a friend of mine on the Fox lot. He was an assistant on the X-Files, again, dating myself, and uh, drove onto the lot, and it's really precious to get a parking spot. Like, it's a big deal, but he wangled one for me. So I'm pulling into the spot, and there's this guy standing in the spot talking to someone, and I looked at him and politely was like, could you move out of the way? And he kind of went, I'm not going to move. So I hit him. I mean, not hard. <laughs> But I nudged him while I was late. Um, it turns out it, it's like such a, it's a comedy. It's a cute mate. It was my friend's boss. His name is Howard Gordon. <laughs> um, he's, he created a couple of shows like 
he ran 24 in the X-Files. Um, and he thought I was amusing. And after lunch, asked my friend, Mike, what I did. And I, he said I was a writer. And he asked me if I had anything. And I happened to have a script in the trunk of my car. Because I didn't want to be a writer, but I'd written one in college. Um, so clearly, that is what I wanted. He read it. He offered me a job on the X-Files. I said, no, I'm going to be a food critic. I'm moving to New York. And Howard's comment was, thank God, because it's a very unhappy place to work. But I sent your stuff to my friends at Party of Five. And they hate everyone's writing, only they hate their own writing worse. So it will never happen. I got very lucky. Um, and they hired me on Party of Five, and I decided to stay. And since then, the creators of that show, I've worked with again on a show called Lone Star on Fox. And then Howard called me, and I worked on Tyrant on FX with him. So it's been um, a gift that keeps on giving. So have gas in your car. <laughs> And Julia also sent us even more recommendations. Also, it was very cool to listen to LaToya Morgan's episode of the podcast and then watch in real time as she totally revolutionized writing Twitter uh, by introducing the WGA staffing boost hashtag. And of course, I loved hearing from my buddy, Hillary Levi. I loved her executive perspective uh, from kind of the other side of the table. And I just love hearing her talk. So. <laughs> Well, you can see earlier for the LaToya clip, which we already mentioned and played, but here is a clip from our episode with Hillary Levi, which is PT112, uh, where she discusses whether or not you should work in development if you want to be a writer. For writers, I would say, unless you need a job, don't work in development. <laughs> Go to an agency or a management company, but don't work in development. When you're done, when you've put in your year, try to work on a show. Go work for writers watch what they do, go do your writers groups, things like that. Because I see so many people that say they want to be writers and then they end up going into development and then they stop writing. They don't consider themselves writers anymore. And I think it's fine if you change your mind and you want to do development or you want to go into representation or whatever, it's okay to change your mind. But I see so many people that are like, I work in development, but I actually want to be a writer. I'm saying this as a white person, so I have a little bit of privilege when I give this piece of advice in like, I know that you got to take a job. But if you have the opportunity to not work in development, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> if you are a development person, don't go work in a writer's room. If you don't want to be a writer, I know so many people and I'm guilty of it. I almost worked for two showrunners. And they did not hire me, and I'm really glad they didn't, because it would not have been as beneficial for me as working at a network and learning how to actually do what I do. And I'm not trying to say that there's no benefit to working in another part of the business. There's absolutely a benefit to working in a different part of the business, because you learn things that you weren't expecting you were going to learn. But it does also take you away from doing the work that you want to be doing. And if you have the opportunity, if you're fortunate enough to wait for that right opportunity, try. Or take that development job and like keep applying to writer's rooms, <laughs> like, you know, or vice versa. So definitely make that money, pay your bills, be responsible, don't get into debt, but also try to work in the area you're passionate about. And if you realize you're not, then it's okay to change your mind. Another guest who sent us a recommendation was Sam Levinches from our WonderCon 2019 panel. So let's hear what Sam recommends. 
I'm going to throw it back to an oldie but a goodie, uh, Networking 101, How to Talk with People in Hollywood, was a great episode and really helpful as I was trying to find my sea legs getting out there and talking with people for the first time in this industry. It's the hardest part of the business for me, and I think hearing from Alex and Nick about how they make it through and handle the anxiety of having to go out and socialize is incredibly helpful. And especially right now with all the WGA mix mixers happening, it's also very relevant. So now let's listen to our PT05 episode, Networking 101 where we discuss what do you have to offer and figuring that out. One of the things to think about when you are deepening those relationships with people after you first met them is what do you have to offer rather than thinking about what you can kind of like take from them or they can give to you. Uh, how can you kind of build some, some value in yourself that they might be interested in continuing that relationship? One of the biggest fear uh, in terms of networking is this question of like, what are we going to talk about? There's this awkward silence right now. I can't really continue the conversation. And there's really two sides to networking. Uh, there's the giving and the getting. And you are only in control of the giving, right? Like mm -hmm. it is in your best interest to quote unquote work that side, that the one that you control uh, up to 100%. And usually, as we said, like when you give people something, they'll usually want to give you more back. That's the reciprocity principle. Yeah, be generous. One of the things you can do is build a resource list or anything like that of what you are interested in to share and discuss. So practically speaking, I have my own list occasionally of things that interest me or things that I want to discuss with friends, family, other people that I meet at networking events. Uh, it can be a show I really enjoyed, like BoJack Horseman, or a book, an article I read, or an information I learned, a tip, tricks, anything like that, an yeah. event. And we're not saying that you literally need to like unravel a scroll in front of them and be like, <laughs> one, BoJack Horseman, have you watched it? Um, but, you know, have those things in mind uh, and kind of like riff off of them if they're talking about how they work in TV comedy or animation or something like, oh my God, have you seen the second season of BoJack? Exactly. It's so great. And you guys can kind of riff back and forth about that. Exactly. I think a big misconception about this idea of like, oh, what can I offer them is it's all about the jobs or your career or like that kind of stuff. It's yeah, really not, not about that. It's really about before you go out to Mixer or some event, think of three resources or tips, shows, opportunities, whatever it is that you like to discuss and you are actually enthused about talking about with someone else. Now, good friend Hilary Guest from the Screenwriters Rent Room also sent us his recommendations. So let's take a listen. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Hilliard Guest, writer, producer, host of the Screenwriters Rant Room. You know how we do it. Big shout out to Nick and Alex on their 150th episode. That's big time, fellas. Proud of you guys. Keep doing your thug fizzle. So check it out. I'm going to give you guys my top three favorite episodes. You guys have been jamming over there. I'll start with my first one, which was, of course, an episode I was on because I'm that cool, <laughs> which is an evening with the writer's room, um, the paper team live episode PT 100. That shit was the bomb. We had a ball that night. Second one was, of course, my girl Latoya Morgan. She went on there and killed it with you guys, which is building your career as a TV writer. PT 111, 111, of course. And then... The last one that I really have enjoyed and I passed on to a lot of my young interns and assistants who listen to my show and stuff is uh, the one you get you guys did on Mentorship One, uh, Mid-Death Crisis Overview, 
PT-128. I thought that was a really cool episode. You got some insight into this new young cat who's coming up. And um, I believe that's the one he pitched on the first time. And I thought he had a really cool pitch. And you guys gave him some good adjustments and stuff. So that was a jam for sure. Anyway, all the best to you two fellas. All the love. You guys are working your way up on your show. Um, I think you guys appreciate you guys for always promoting Screenwriters Rant Room. You know, we do the same for you guys on our show. You know, constantly we put you guys in the show notes every week so people can check you guys out. So um, you guys keep doing what you're doing. We wish you guys all the best. All right. Peace. Thank you so much, Hilliard, for all your awesome, kind words. And these were, in fact, uh, amazing picks. Obviously, you can see earlier for all the relevant clips and uh, the show notes for the link to those full episodes. And you can check out more of Hilliard on his own screenwriting podcast, The Screenwriter's Rent Room, as always. Now that we've listened to some of our guests and our listeners' episodes, what about us? Well, let's move on to some of our own favorite moments and episodes from uh, recent times, or at the very least since the 100th episode that have not been mentioned so far. What is one of, uh, of your favorite? Yeah, so one that I really enjoy uh, and I think is just super useful and necessary for people to know the appropriate way to go about it is PT-121 Networking 201 Cold Contact Queries and Etiquette. This is one of the most common ways that aspiring writers are putting themselves out there and reaching out to people um, in terms of cold queries and trying to find managers and all that sort of thing. And sure, it's not the most effective way, but if you want to do it, you should do it right. So take a listen to this clip uh, about writing an effective cold query letter. So let's move on to the content of a query letter. We're sitting down at our emails and we're about to send something out. What should we put in there? Well, let me put on my little marketing hat. Uh, it's pretty fashionable. Can you see it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll also echo while under my marketing hat, something that I mentioned long ago in our pitch document episode about the idea of framing your message. Uh, essentially, you need to sell yourself. So let's role play for a second and say, I'm a busy manager at Paper Co. I'm looking for new up and coming writers, but I'm not quite finding the right person. But thankfully, Nick, you're here. I'm here. You just won these three amazing competitions. You have the kinds of stories that no one else can bring to the table because of your specific background. And on top of your well-received samples, you're already working on other scripts that perfectly fit the mold of our paper co-management company. You've been listening to our TED Talks and you've been to all our AFF panels and you're a fan of all of our shows. I know, I'm pretty great, huh? Oh, classic Nick, always doing his research. And as I read your message, I realize all of that. And I say to myself, wow, this person knows what we're looking for better than we do. Hook, line, sinker. So that's how you need to frame your story and your content. It's about what we need and how you can fill that void. It's a bit like a job interview where they're looking for the right person for the right spot. That's how you should think of the query letter as. Absolutely. And I think that there's this notion in people's heads that assistants and other folks in the industry are sitting around as gatekeepers and they enjoy the process of keeping people out of the industry. But that's not the case at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They are looking and hoping for some brilliant young rising talent to show up with the best script they've ever read so they can put that on their boss's desk or they can go get that made and that will help their career. So if your stuff is good enough and you sell yourself in a good enough way, the opportunities are there. As for the content of a query email, as someone who once worked for a literary management and production company, I would read queries on occasion. And the ones that I found the most compelling were always concise and to the point, 
They highlighted why the writer was interesting or unique. They had killer log lines for maybe two or three samples, and they were respectful, professional, and not cheesy or gimmicky. Now, that said, if it's done well, showing some of your voice or humor in these letters can still be effective. And importantly, they did not just attach their scripts and send them off. Uh, Start with those log lines. If someone likes something, they will ask to read it. Yes. If you're attaching scripts and uh, PDFs to that initial email, it's akin to asking for that huge ask in the first place without building uh, some common ground. So that's a big no-no. Yeah, that was such a great episode altogether and even more relevant now whether you are unstaffed or staffed because the staffing grid right now asks people to submit a cover letter so i think the content that we discuss in this episode is still relevant for people even looking to be staffed right now for one of mine i did want to highlight pt119 which was a writing samples and preparing for stevie staffing with liz alper and kai Wu. and this was an amazing conversation about uh what samples are worth writing and uh, how they get ready for staffing season so here is a clip of them debating whether features are better samples than tv pilots and specs what were your thoughts on the idea of in 2019 writing a feature versus a pilot as a spec sample i mean i i was on the side of disagreeing with that concept. Um, I don't know Daniel and I always hate telling people don't take this advice. I think you should just take everyone's advice because there's just no sure way to making it as a TV writer. My, my gut instinct, and this is why I texted you is that to focus on writing features means that you're not focusing on how to write television Mm. and also being someone who was an assistant for a showrunner where we were staffing you get hundreds of people who are staffing for maybe two or three slots and everyone's sending in a script, which also means that someone has to read all those scripts with a lot of these pilots. You have to try and grab someone within the first 10 pages. That's limiting when you're writing a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I think a lot of my favorite movies are slow burns. And I mean, if you look at Call Me By Your Name. If you look at Carol, you know. <laughs> the best movie of yeah, all time. Exactly. Using, <laughs> I'm, I'm using your Achilles heel right now. <laughs> you just don't get hit with a lot of action up front. It, it really requires you to read and watch the entire way through. When you have to read hundreds of scripts, you can't really dedicate a lot of time to a 120-page film that someone would have written mm-hmm as their writing sample instead of a pilot to try and stand out, I would give that 20 pages. And if it hasn't hooked my attention, I have to move on to the other samples. And so in my opinion, I don't think you should, I'm not saying don't write films. I'm saying write films in addition to pilots, not Mm -hmm. instead of, so that's my Mm -hmm. argument. Right. That is my argument that I put so succinctly. <laughs> That's great. Are, no. you, are you proud of me? I am so proud. Yeah. And what's weird about this is I actually agree with you 100%. Oh, yes. And the the thing about Dan, I don't just disclaimer, I do know Dan. Um, when I read his thread, the mm-hmm. thing I, I, I was, he was targeting a very specific thing. So I think sure. for when I read it, I took it as how do you break in if you're not an established writer? So not even where you are, where yeah. we are, or anyone, yeah. right? And for me, having just gone through pitching shows, development, and we've, you know, staffing for the last couple of years, mm-hmm. I agree with him in that, like, TV is incredibly difficult. There used to be a, a way of thinking of, like, oh, feature is so hard. I'll just go into TV. And, you know, like, feature writers thinking, like, I'll sell a pilot, whatever, blah, blah. Yeah. That is not the case anymore. Like, my reps literally said, it's harder to, to see. They're like, don't write the spec script. Just yeah. do, the, do the pitch. 
And even if you sell a pitch, usually there are huge attachments to it to try to sell it. So if you're a new person coming in, you might not have access to those new attachments. You don't have the Greg Berlanti's of the world to help you sell the show. So then, okay, great. Then you write a pilot for staffing. Mm -hmm. And I came up the same way as Liz. I was an assistant and read all those samples to see getting staffed. It is so hard nowadays. I think it's, it's, it's a small miracle. So then it's like, okay, staffing process is not easy too. So you write a pilot. Are you going to get staffed? I'm not sure like what the odds are, because most lower level writers are from the programs. So, and those programs do specs and pilots, right? So then I, then I'm, then I'm thinking like, okay, great. So if you just have, yes, you should write everything. Mm-hmm. But if, if time constraints, like you, which one are you writing first? The very targeted thing is to me, it makes sense to write a feature because in this day and age, I think you, you can still sell a feature spec without huge attachments because you can, studios can buy it. They can just buy your concept and have someone rewrite you or go on the blacklist. I think TV is a very involved process and mm-hmm. it, you do need years of like breaking in, working our way up to do something. Now, of course, there are we, have, we all have friends who just sold something right away. And yeah. I think that happens in any... Su Chung. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that happens all the time. But I think statistically speaking, and Dan said it in his thread, he's not... That happens. He's not looking for that 1%. He's, he's going to go with a path with the best st- odds statistically. And that's where I agreed with him on it. Right. So I think we're yeah. saying the same thing, actually. It's just I even narrowed down his Yeah, because I think when I, when I read it, for me, the interpretation that I took away, and this is putting words in his mouth, mm-hmm. which is totally unfair. When I read it, it was very much a focus on going the, the, the movie route first before coming back to the television route. And that struck me as a little odd because if you're going to be a TV, TV writer, right. be a TV yeah. writer. Right. And I kind, of, I kind of think I know what you're saying, where it's like if you're just trying to get attention, period, yeah. write a feature. And the way I took it was if you want to get staffed, write a feature. Right. And that, right. Yeah. And that, that's where I agree yeah. with like, which is also Yeah. That's- which is also why we were both like... Uh, we should probably stop talking on Twitter. Yeah. We're actual friends. We could probably talk <laughs> in person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unless you're on a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> so podcast. They tried to split us up. They tried to turn us against each other. <laughs> it's like Thunderdome. Yeah. Another favorite recent episode of mine is PT141 with uh, Charlotte Lariston, where she discussed performing in and out of the writer's room. And I know another one of our guests mentioned that one too. So take a listen to this clip for a really great, honest discussion of how you can learn from your failures and become a better writer. A lot of failure on my part. I failed a lot and it's been very helpful, but it's been a lot of failure. <laughs> so yeah, my first outline was short and then my first produced script was, it was, it was okay. It was okay. The outline was strong that I eventually did. It was strong enough to go to script. And then the thing that I turned in, what it lacked was skill. What it lacked was ease. You know, it lacked practice. Like you could tell in my writing that I hadn't been reading enough scripts and that I hadn't been writing enough scripts. So that has changed, of course. And of course, I've learned that from those failures that I should be reading scripts all the time, that I should be writing all the time. I wasn't doing that and I didn't know that. So, and that first script showed that. And so that first script had to be rewritten in the room. It wasn't like a giant rewrite, but it was enough that... It was enough. It was a it was a lot of rewriting in the room. But it was a really supportive room. I really liked that experience working at People of Earth. I worked with really good writers. I learned a lot from them and I got to contribute a lot and that was that was really fun. 
Another guest episode that I really particularly enjoyed was the one we did with Tamara Becker-Wilkinson. That was PT144 about writing heroes and breaking genres. And as a huge fan of her work and Do Patrol, it was honestly a real treat to have Tamara on the podcast. And uh, she's probably one of our best guests. No offense to all the other ones, uh, in part because of how insightful and, and fun she was. We talked a lot about her different experiences in the writer's room. So here's now a clip of her discussing the importance of blue skying on Doom Patrol and how it was kind of a loose guide with temples and then breaking a season of a genre show while staying grounded. So what we did on Doom Patrol, and we did this on Daredevil also, which was we put in a lot of work at the beginning of the season to lay a roadmap for ourselves. So we would know where the big tentpole episodes were going to be. Like we knew roughly that we were going to do a Jane Underground episode. And so then once you get these sort of tentpoles set up, then you can sort of fill in how you get to those temple episodes, which you can always stray from. But once you have this very loose guide through the season, then you can start breaking them into individual episodes. And then you would just go episode by episode. And so we would have a rough idea of in episode three, we knew that we wanted the Doom Patrol to go on this road trip. That's how it started. Doom Patrol goes on a road trip and they were going to go back to Fuctopia. They were going to go back to where the machine was created. And it literally just started as, what if we did the whole episode as a road trip episode? Wouldn't it be fun to see these weird, awkward people together on a road trip for? And then somehow through the twists and turns of several, maybe a week of working on it, it just sort of morphed into, you know, and there is a, definitely like the first few days when you have such a vague sense of the target that you're aiming at, you do do a lot of blue skying and everything goes and then you'll run off on one tangent like the road trip episode or what if they got stuck in the airport for an entire episode and that was a day's <laughs> worth of work that we talked about but then ultimately when someone gets an idea like what if they get to Paraguay sooner in the episode and then it's like this weird German Oktoberfest kind of place <laughs> and then you learn the history of it through a puppet show. I mean, once someone said puppet show, that was a game changer. And, <laughs> but you find some sort of thing like that, like puppet show that unlocks the rest of the episode. It's almost like doing a crossword puzzle. I'm a big crossword person and you can be stuck and stuck and stuck forever. And then you find, not me because I cheat, but you can find that one word that unlocks the rest of the puzzle for you. I think sometimes breaking a story can be like that and the rest of it will sort of fall into place. And how do you stay grounded when you have so many, I want to say insane or crazy ideas, especially when you approach episodes uh, non-linearly, uh, the rat episode, there's a lot of those episodes that are atypical for a traditional TV show. So how do you stay grounded and, and rooted in characters when you deal with that sort of format? It's all about keeping the emotion of it grounded. And that is how I feel like you can do almost anything. Even in the moment when Admiral Whiskers, his mother dies, it's still about this little, he's an orphan and he's just <laughs> lost his mother. And then here is this villain who's coming and capitalizing on that moment by trying to make an ally out of him. If you keep the emotions grounded, and that's been true of all the superhero stuff that I do, that you can get away with almost anything because that's what keeps it relatable and makes it feel genuine. 
as opposed to cartoony. Another great guest that we had on as a personal favorite of mine was PT-118 with Alethea Jones, who is a fellow Australian, amazing director. And this is all about directing TV comedy. So I thought this entire episode was just an awesome perspective on writing from a director and how the whole production kind of works together to make things happen. So here's a clip of her discussing what she looks for in a script as a director and what makes a good script stand out. Well, something that I'm always looking for, even in feature scripts and television, because I get sent a lot of scripts and my time is really precious. Everybody's time is precious. And so I am trying to read, even just in the first few sentences, I really am going, am I in safe hands? I'm going to give this person three hours. I read slow. I'm not a fast (laughs) reader because I think I'm trying to really understand how I visually see it. So I am very skeptical and trusting because it's like I've got to give my imagination over to this writer. So I'm looking for their way with words. I am looking for how smart they are when they write their action. And even though that's not dialogue, I just want to know if I'm in good hands. And they're the little tricks. And when I work with writers, when I'm developing my own scripts as a director with a writer, I'm telling them that all the time because there's studio execs reading it. So it, it is about those little turns of phrases. Unfortunately, typos, I mean, you do encounter typos even on my own work. I'll still catch typos when we're shooting. And I'm like, holy, wow, where'd that come from? But try and get rid of those typos if you can. I'm looking for original dialogue and original characters. And please, please stop describing women by their appearance. Please. It really is an eye-rolling thing for us, indexing women by their appearance. It's it's not a character thing. And and also, you know, I get really, <laughs> this is my venting now, but the shorthand sometimes that writers take with female characters for um, violence against them or that they've been through a trauma in their past, they don't usually give that to male characters. So I'm looking for those little triggers and going, eh, uh, this person doesn't know. To your point, there's this confusion between trauma as character development yes. when it's not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, it's a shortcut. It, it feels a little lazy sometimes right. to and me. Exploitative. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. That was such a fun episode. And uh, I feel like you really picked it just because of the Australian connection, right? I mean, I had to get my Australian <laughs> accent back for at least one episode. So. Of course, of course. My next favorite episode on that list is PT126. And that's the sting productive during your hiatus or break. And this was honestly a great episode we did where we really tackled the importance of staying productive and active during the off season or when you are even unemployed and sort of the many ways we go about staying mentally, physically, and creatively sharp. So here is an excerpt where we specifically discuss the value of having measurable goals. The first thing to point out is that you should have a schedule and stick to it, uh, which of course is easier said than done, but I have found very useful to have some sort of routine, uh, however loose it is, uh, which includes bedtime and a wake-up time. That way, my schedule isn't messed up too much when I jump back on another show. And it's also a mental thing. You can set a dedicated uh, amount of hours for your job search or your networking, and that way you will actually accomplish things in your job quest instead of every effort you make being sort of diluted across the day. Which brings me to my next point, which is this idea that you gotta have tangible hours for tangible goals. This is something we discussed at length in our productivity episode, but as a quick reminder, it is vital that you break down your goals and what you wanna accomplish in a granular, practical, 
actionable way. So if you want to find another job, then your goal should not be, uh, I want to find another job by June 2nd. It should be more from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. I'm going to reach out to X number of contacts. I'm going to look up X number of jobs and I'm going to send out X number of resumes and so forth. Maybe you won't hit your target every single day, but at least you have something specific to aim for. Exactly. And not only will these specific measurable goals make it easier for you to make progress towards what you want to be doing, but mentally, it's going to feel like you're actually achieving something. It's very easy to get burnt out and despondent thinking, well, it's been two weeks or a month or two months and I still haven't found a job. I just wasted all of that time. Well, if you've actually been meeting your goals every day or every week, then you've actually probably sent out, I don't know, 300 job applications and had 12 coffees or drinks with acquaintances or written 60 pages of your feature project. So you actually have something to look at and feel accomplished about rather than just wallowing in the futility of it all. Yeah. And it's also a time where you can think long term as well. Are you looking to be staffed or to get another assistant gig? Uh, Those two things are not mutually exclusive. So make sure you specifically divide those goals in your schedule based on what you want to accomplish, short term and long term. Which writers are you reaching out to in the hopes of an assistant position as opposed to which EPs are you catching up with to see if they're going to be staffing soon? You got to divide and conquer. Right. You can either look at this period of time as a crisis or a disaster, or you can see it as an opportunity that you're going to have. There's never going to be a time where you have more free time and ability to structure your life how you want it. You know, I think you need to look sort of like a Zen mindset about it. Like there's nothing I can do in this exact moment to change the situation. So I'm going to make the most of what I have available to me now, which is time and opportunity and uh, see what happens. Yeah. Basically be Dr. Strange in Infinity War and see all the possibilities (laughs) and be above uh, time and space. Yes. Come to bargain with Dormammu for your next job. <laughs> and for my last episode recommendation, it's so hard to go past PT-129, which was our third WonderCon panel about comics and TV writing. Now, I thought it was a fantastic panel with a bunch of different uh, perspectives on comics from all of our great guests, and my family was even there uh, in the audience visiting from Australia, so uh, it's a really great memory for me. So take a listen to a couple of clips here, one from our panelists discussing drawing inspiration from the key visuals in comic panels and adapting those to the screen. Comic books are such a a visual format, much like TV, and maybe this is more of a production question, but do you ever consider the panels of a comic book series, especially those iconic imageries and those issues, and translating those into TV, or does that not really enter your mind? I mean, I'll say, from my point of view, having written and produced my show, you know, having been on set uh, for, you know, the production and the supervision of episodes, the fundamental panel-based format of a comic book taught me so much about what are we going to (laughs) need. So when you're sitting behind the director and you're just kind of hoping the actors are going to, you know, do the scene well and he'll direct it well. And at the end of the day, you go, oh, no, no, no. I know I'm going to be in post and I'm going to be editing this later. And you've missed a shot that I'm desperately going to need because it teaches you this economy of visuals, right? It's like, I have to explain this tremendously complex sequence in eight or four or 16 panels or one panel if you're doing a splash page. And it, it, it is a kind of masterclass in directing on the page that then really does translate to the physical production of a show. Yeah. On the shows that I've worked on, we've always had comic book panels and pages and storylines, but like there were always a few sort of iconic panels where like, we like this image. But that's always the way we approach it. Of We like this image. This image is evocative. This image is interesting. How do we recreate this image or retranslate this image? Um, one of the other shows that I, I got to work on very briefly was uh, Daredevil. Uh, uh, it was on season 
four. <sighs> no. Uh, <laughs> uh, too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Um, and one of the things I thought that they did very well, particularly in season three, was take images from the Born Again storyline and kind of remix them into a different story. Uh, and we tried to do that a lot on Cloak as well. It's like, what are the images that stand out as interesting from Cloak and Dagger? And how do we recreate that, re reimagine it, but without it becoming sort of slavish? You know, there's a lot of Whose decision is it? Is it the showrunner? Is it the director? Like, who gets to say, oh, this image on page nine from... Mostly the showrunner. Like, Joe came in with a lot of the the books, and, like, it was something that he tasked the room with as well, to, like, go through the books and pull uh, our support staff, our writer's assistants, uh, and writer's PAs did a lot of that work as well, of going through books and finding the images and saying, these are the interesting images. You guys should look at these. And then for us to like return to them, not just as like, oh, we want to recreate that on screen, but also this is what's at core of the thing. Because uh, you can really just fall into also like splash page movie making, <laughs> where all you're doing is making these big static images that actually tell you nothing about story. And of course, <laughs> we can't go past the shared love space when it comes to adapting IP that you're excited about. So take a listen in on that. I think a lot of it is making them understand how much you love it and why you love it. You know, I think that, that anybody who, as somebody who had been a owner of IP, who had been talking to producers who wanted to, to do it, it's why did you love this thing to begin with? And what version of this thing do you want to make that will respect that initial love? And if you can sit down across the table from somebody and be like, no, I love your book. I'm going to change like 40% of it, but not because I don't like it. It's because here's stuff that has to happen. Again, I'm not translating, I'm adapting. Like, it's going to require change. But know that I'm coming from, I love this book. And I want the message of this book. I want the reason why we love this book to translate. And if you can do that, if you can find that shared sort of love space, uh, which sounds dirtier than I intended, um, <laughs> then I think you can... Don't ever say that again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the name of my new band, you guys. Shared love space. Um, but yeah, if you can both have that, that shared love space. Uh, I'm making it worse. I'm making it worse. No, three times will be the charm. Uh, then, then you can proceed from a place of, of mutual respect. And I think that you both can then um, take that shared love space and, and make something great. This is kind of what our podcast is. It's our shared uh, love space, isn't it? Yes. You just feel so exhausted after 150 episodes. <laughs> it's right. a lot of loving to go around. Alex. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, let's uh, go to my last episode that I did want to highlight. And that's PT125 TV running incubators and the evolution of access. And I really feel like this episode is a tenpole episode for us. Honestly, it was a very frank conversation about our concerns about the evolution of access and the rise of pay for play in, uh, in TV writing. And I, I would argue that this is probably the moment where we can look back on in a few years and say, oh, we were talking about these things at that point before people were discussing those issues. So that's a really honest and uh, blunt, uh, arguably episode that I recommend everybody listen to. Here's a clip from it. 
it seems like when you're at the point where you've been staffed on a show before, you most likely have representatives, you've been taking meetings around town with people, uh, it feels like that's how the industry should then continue to operate. If you want to sell a show somewhere, you get your agent or your manager to send it out to producers and take it around to studios and networks and you go on a bunch of pitches and that's how it works. It feels weird to suddenly be pulling everyone back one step and saying, oh no, that's not how it works for you yet. Let's put you all through this kind of like lottery system, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think what you're heading on is this idea that even though you've been vouched for by all these people, right? If you've been staffed, how many people have you been vouched for by that point? You know, the showrunner, the network, the studio, your managers, your reps, everyone. And still you need to then apply to this lottery system with this application process just to get the potentiality of having your project be developed with these people. Obviously, you know, the project in of itself is amazing and, and the incubator itself as a concept is great. But what we're talking about here is this idea that despite all the work you're putting in and despite your brig, essentially, it's still not being valued as what it is. Yeah, it feels almost like an extension of how the rest of the job market is in that years ago, if you graduated high school, that's all you needed. You could go get a job somewhere, get a good salary, work your way up. Now you need a college degree minimum. And even then, it's not good enough. Now you need a graduate degree. Now you need five years experience or an entry-level position. Right. It feels like now it's working its way back in the entertainment industry Absolutely. where at one point, perhaps, you know, good material is good material and it's going to find its way there. And now it's kind of like you have to jump through all these other hoops as well. Yeah. And it's pretty tragic. I've, I think, like you said, it's the state of our world and our industry. And maybe this is the millennial uh, crying hour or the, you know, Gen Z or whatever. <laughs> but the reality is that the people who are applying to those programs have that effort and have been vouched for. And yet they're still not getting, you know, recognized for that amount of work. So it's a bit strange that we're moving backwards in a way where instead of breaking in a new people, we're trying to break in the people who have already had their break. Totally. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the kind of funding that's out there for screenwriters say in Australia through um, government sponsored programs where they're like, oh, we have a writer's placement in a writer's room in one of these shows in Sydney. And you're going to go in there for two weeks or a month or whatever and see what it's like to be in a writer's room. And it's like, wow, that seems like such an incredible opportunity for someone who's maybe just graduated or is working in the industry, but hasn't gotten their first writing gig yet. But then you look at the requirements for it and it is that you have to have been working before as a writer and you have to be part of the Writers Guild Association or whatever already, which is another hoop to jump through. And then you need recommendations to people in the industry. And then the person who ended up getting it had been working for like 15 or 20 years just in comedy and he wanted to be placed into a drama writer's room to see what it was like. And it's like, why do the opportunities go right. to people who are already working professionals when there should be more avenues for people on their way up. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it does undermine all that work and it undermines everyone because it undermines the up and comers who are still trying to break in and trying to make their market. It undermines the work that the people who have been staffed uh, have done to be staffed uh, because they're, again, pushed down to the level of applying to these programs. It undermines the people who have their work being developed organically without having to apply to these programs. Uh, it really is a shame uh, that we have to codify and, and sort of create this competition system for every single facet of this industry. And perhaps that's just a testament to how competitive the world is and especially Hollywood. But I feel it's kind of sad that we have reached this point. And that's a wrap on clips of your favorite moments, our favorite moments, and uh, our guest's favorite moments. But what about some new content? Well, let's get into it right now. Right, so in this next section, we are going to be checking in and catching up with a bunch of our uh, great former guests and see what they've been doing lately, uh, hear a little bit of an update from them. And we're going to start with Liz Alper from PT119. 
Hey guys, it's Liz Alper, and I kid you not, I have recorded this, I think, 53 times by now, according to the count in my voice record system. Um, I'm awful at talking, and there's a cat on my diaphragm, and it's the wee hours of Wednesday morning. I have just completed a speech uh, for Candidates Night because I am running for a spot on the WGA West Board of Directors. Since you last heard from me, I have gotten involved in several grassroots movements uh, created to support writers during the standoff between our agencies and the WGA. I created something called the WGA Solidarity Challenge Grid, which records recommendations made by upper level writers of scripts that they liked by writers who submitted them scripts. Uh, that's the elevator pitch. If you want more details, please go online because I cannot mess up another voice recording. I am so tired. Uh, but please feel free to drop me a line on any form of social media. I'd be happy to answer all of your questions about it. I'm also running for a seat on the board of directors. And I decided to run because I wanted to continue doing good. And I want to continue supporting my writer, my fellow writers any way that I possibly could. Beyond, you know, this the current negotiations with the agencies beyond next year's MBA negotiations. I really wanted to find a way to take my experience as a diverse female mid-level writer and bring it to the table so that I could help amplify the voices of other underrepresented writers like me. I think that we've been overlooked. And I think a lot of the issues that we're facing right now are very specific to the changing landscapes in Hollywood. And I think even if you were mid-level five, ten years ago, there's a whole new crop of problems that didn't exist when you were a co-producer. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Those are the issues I'm hoping to address. Not a whole lot of specificity, I know. Again, it's very early on Wednesday. Uh, so please, again, drop me a line if you have any questions about that. Um, and if there's one bit of advice that I could pass on or something that I've learned over the last couple of months, it's that every little bit of help counts and it means something. I think we are seeing a new generation of writers in Hollywood who are prioritizing lifting each other up rather than stabbing each other in the back. I think we are lucky enough that there are plenty of jobs and plenty of projects to go around we're not being paid as well for them and we're not being treated as well as we should be, but we're also prioritizing each other's well-being. And I think that is so important to remember and to hold on to, especially in the coming months, because we are going to be tested on a united front and our solidarity is also going to be tried by basically everybody in Hollywood. And it is just so important that we continue to not just help one another and lift up one another, but just watch out for one another. So that's, that's what I would pass on to everybody listening right now is just watch each other's backs. Be a good person. Do the best you can. You're doing great. Uh, thank you so much. I'm glad that I have finally finished this recording. Have a good night. Well, I hope you sleep well, Liz. Yes, I'm sure she's probably still asleep right now. <laughs> no, that's uh, awesome. It's, it's so great to hear about all the amazing stuff that she's doing for writers and putting herself out there to make the world a better place. Yeah, and uh, we'll put the links of, especially the WGA Solidarity Grid, in uh, the show notes. So now let's take a listen to what Chris Montfet from our WandaCon episode has been up to. Hey guys, uh, Chris Montfet here, uh, just catching up with you since last we spoke, which I think 
if I remember correctly, was back in WonderCon uh, on that really terrific panel that you folks hosted uh, and the really amazing crowd that was there. What have I been up to since last we spoke? Last time we talked, I had made the jump from four seasons of the heavily serialized uh, science fiction uh, time travel show 12 Monkeys, which we had sort of proudly concluded uh, last year, into the world of procedural network television, which is its own unique beast with its own unique set of challenges and opportunities, which has been a great experience. We, I was there for last season, which was the show's second season, and we are deep into the writing and production of the upcoming third season, which premieres in September uh, with a literal splashy episode. I think you guys will enjoy. Uh, you may have seen the recent uh, teaser trailer um, teasing that we're going to do a little bit of a tsunami arc uh, in the first couple episodes, which has been tremendously fun. I've also sold a pilot pitch, uh, so I'm working on that script currently based on a really interesting 1990s sci-fi film, uh, which I will not, uh, which I don't think I can really talk about yet, but that should be a very sort of fun, kind of cably Doctor Who sci-fi detective story, uh, which I think will be very uh, interesting, and I look forward to be working on that script over the next couple of weeks and months. What are some tips on adapting to unique tones and formats of a show? That's been an interesting experience, uh, going from something so heavily serialized and sort of carefully crafted and written, especially on sort of a 10-episode order, which we were doing in our last two seasons of Monkeys, to something that is kind of so procedural and so sort of just singular episode by episode and really sort of a story and event driven um, rather than sort of long serialized arcs. It's been a, sort of a unique challenge and, and an opportunity to learn a sort of completely different skill set. Um, the interesting thing about 911 in doing all of our cases from week to week um, is that you really have the opportunity to tell, you know, three to four kind of short stories on a weekly basis, which is to come up with a set of characters in, in some sort of unique and, you know, typically Ryan Murphy-esque wild uh, scenario and then tell a full story with them. So, you know, where do they start and how do they change and where do they end, you know, within the context of a five minute scene um, that affects both the victims of the case and the characters of the show and somehow plugs into their personal stories that week and the things that they're struggling with in their own lives. And so that's been a really tremendous uh, new skill to learn. And I think what I've, if there is any sort of wisdom or tip that I can offer in that, it's leaning on the room. You know, I mean, I think, and, and, and that's the common, the commonality between these two shows, which is you have a room of really extraordinary writers uh, and who all have an extraordinary set of ideas and combine those in any number of really meaningful and moving and emotional ways. You know, I think to try to do this as an island would be tremendously difficult. For us, it's really trying to sort of just take the wisdom and the direction of our showrunner, Tim Minear, and then kind of just pull our brains because the, the, the collective base of knowledge that you need to, to pull off a show like this from just who read what article that could provide the basis for what case, who had what personal experience that could provide the basis for what individual character is, you know, amplified by a thousand on a show like this versus something 
that's more serialized. Um, it's actually in a, in a lot of ways more story. You don't have the luxury of of slow playing a story out over ten episodes. You have to tell a whole arc uh, in a very quick and expedient way. That's been great. Just just leaning on the room and learning how to work with the room in a different way, learning how to combine ingredients uh, in you know sort of different proportions. And also just adjusting to the pace, you know, just just adjusting to the much quicker brand of storytelling uh, that we play around with in procedural network. You don't have the time with a train moving that quickly and with that much money and attention and marketing and steam power behind it to carefully craft a puzzle the way that you would in a show that it's a 10 episode order that you can sort of take your time with. I mean, the train barrels forward in network and you have to feed that beast and you have to do it in a way that produces a quality result, you know, that's about people and characters and emotions that uh, a very large swath of the audience can relate to because you are playing to a much broader, much less specific audience than you are in cable. And the fun of it and the, the kind of saving grace of it is that because you get to tell these little short stories, you get to keep yourself constantly involved. You get to keep yourself constantly interested. If you're working on a particular case that doesn't necessarily speak to your individual interests as a writer, chances are the next one will because you get to play around in three, four, five sandboxes for every episode. And those sandboxes can vary in terms of tone and in terms of uh, subject matter. And so you're never far removed from a scene that you can really throw yourself into or that really speaks to you as a writer. And then you just also have the fun of of jumping into things that maybe you wouldn't normally instinctually gravitate to on your own. And, you know, seeing how far you can push yourself and seeing if you can find something interesting where, where maybe you, you wouldn't have thought that there was. So that's been a really extraordinary and interesting experience. And just having uh, a room full of brains, really tremendous, tremendously talented people and listening to them and learning from them has has made all the difference in the world. What's one piece of advice, uh, something you've learned recently that you'd like to share? My piece of advice that I give to anybody is really this is a relationship business. It takes a tremendous amount of luck and talent to make your way through the door and to get inside. But once you are inside, it's your relationship with people, whether that's executives, whether that's fellow writers, whether it's, you know, journalists, whatever. This is a business where you will succeed by your ability to interact with people, by your ability to learn from them, to be liked by them, to convince them, to lead them, to work with them, to collaborate. For me, I think it, writing can often be, if not a lonely, certainly an isolating experience where it's you and a keyboard in a room alone. But at the end of the day, your success in this business will be determined by your ability to interface and interact with others and to to let others teach you and to grow through your relationships with those people. And so I just urge anybody in this business to learn when to listen and learn when to speak. It's just love people, be curious, be kind, be empathetic, be compassionate, learn from them, listen to them, just do your best day by day to learn and to really embrace interacting with people. And the advice that I always give to new writers, writers who have yet to 
find themselves in that position, it's really more about geography. It's about putting yourself in places where lightning can strike. If you have yet to get hired for a job or get put through a show, if you truly believe that you have the talent and you truly believe that you're equipped with what it takes to succeed and you're proud of the material that you have and you're willing to put in a lot of time and a lot of disappointment and a lot of close calls, the greatest thing you can do to help the aspect of this business that is dependent entirely on luck is to very strategically put yourself in the places where luck can happen. And that for me means take the crappy assistance job that you may not like or want or aspire to, but will be the first step that leads you to the, the, the where you want to go. Put yourself physically in the places where you can meet people and interact with people who can send the elevator back down and hopefully you can be the person, man or woman, that gets onto it and takes it back up. That's all I got. I mean, I think that I hope that answers your question. And it's been and always is an honor and a privilege to be asked anything and for anybody to listen to any answer you might have or any wisdom you might think you've gleaned. So it's always really a joy to talk to to you guys and to your audience. And I wish you well and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Chris, for that awesome extended update. I really valued uh, all the advice uh, that was just said about breaking procedural action-driven stories and, and sort of rooting it in characters and bringing personal experiences to the table. I thought that was very interesting. For sure. I think Chris had a really honest and interesting take and, and great advice for all our listeners. So uh, thanks so much for sending that in. Yeah. And in fact, we wanted to share with our listeners Chris's full advice and thoughts about not just the intricacies of working in procedurals, how that compares to working cable, but also more content about the importance of networking and how to approach your position in the writer's room. And so to do that, I'll be putting his full uncut update just for our Patreon subscribers to listen to exclusively at paperteam.co slash Patreon. So you can get even more advice on there. And we have an update from the writing team, Michelle Badillo and Caroline Levich, who came on to discuss working on One Day at a Time and the bold type and kind of writing across different uh, tones and genres. So here's what they've been up to. Hey, guys, this is Caroline Levich. And Michelle Badillo. We're checking in after our um, last podcast episode with the Paper Team podcast. So since we we're on the podcast we have worked on because I think we did it in like November. So I think we've worked on two shows. We worked on a free form show that will never see the light never of day. Light of day. That happens sometimes. That happens. Know, roll with the punches. So yeah, we worked on that show. It we actually broke all ten episodes and then the show was put into redevelopment. So that was quite an experience. And then we started on an animation show from the producers of Bob's Burgers that we're working on now. It's a first season show called The Great North that will come out next fall, which is very exciting on Fox. It's interesting. We sort of just started this show and so far it's been a little different than live action, I think just in terms of the pacing, but everything kind of feels the same in pre-production. I don't know if you feel the same way to some extent. Yeah, no, I think that it's, I mean, it's still the same sort of thing. It's like a, the difference is like, it's a four act structure and that it's, Live, it's not live action, so we're not thinking about sets as much, and it's just sort of trying to highlight these characters in really fun ways. But that was sort of why we signed on to an animation show. We wanted to be broken free of the production limitations, limitations of live action. Thank you. Yeah, but besides that, I think... You know, it's interesting. I think there was a time where they would have told you, you know, if you're going to be a comedy writer, stick to 
stick to comedy, like stick to multicam or stick to single cam or just stick to those. And we've done hour long drama. We did comedy and now we're doing an animated show. And I think that I don't think that that hurts us. I think it helps us because I think that there is a thread between all these shows and they're like ultimately about character and about heart and humor. And I think that that's, that's sort of our brand more so than any one specific type of, of genre. Yeah, I fully agree. I don't think that it's like, I, th- I think that there is a thread that links them all. It's like humor with a bit of heart in each one of them. And there, it's not too crude of humor. It's sort of fun, feel good humor in each one just in different ways. And it's really character-based. And we found in each show that we connected with those characters. And that's why we signed on to the show. I will say something that I've learned recently is that sometimes people feel like when they're coming up as writers, they need to hold things close to the chest and not talk about it with other writers. And it's sort of a competition. I think that you should really go about it more in a way of there's enough jobs for all of us. If you're not right for it, if I'm not right for something, maybe you are, or, you know, there's always going to, something's going to come up that's more perfect for you. I've heard of people getting meetings and being like, I have a staffing meeting, but I'm not going to tell you where it's at because I might jinx it. But really, you should be telling everybody because what if I know someone there? I could put in a good word. And I think that we're all bringing each other up together. And it doesn't need to feel like a huge competition between writers. Definitely. I think that's huge. I think also a piece of advice is it's nothing I've learned recently, but it's something I feel like I'm relearning all the time is that it always feels fresh right when you get into a new room is that there's a lot of anxiety to have when you're a writer and you it's like really nerve-wracking to be in front of people and talk about your ideas and just know that no one cares (laughs) no one is thinking about what you said when they leave work so you're going home being like oh my god did I say something stupid did I offend someone did I give a weird look and no one everyone's in their car thinking about themselves they're not thinking about you. It's true. I found that this career, I think, attracts neurotic people because we're all in our heads. And that's why we like to be storytellers and to put things on screen that maybe other people don't think as deeply about. But that also comes out in like a really anxious way. And just chill out. I think chill that's out. that was like our main at the end of our podcast episode. That was our main lesson. And we just would like to drive it home we once more. Lesson. Just I like learned a chill thing. out. <laughs> Um, Yeah, but thanks for having us, and see you guys later. Bye. Bye. That was great. Thank you for the for the content. I'm pretty sad to hear about their somewhat negative experiences uh, working on a show that ended up uh, not being picked up. I think that's becoming more and more common, and I, I'm sure we're going to talk about it in in future episodes. It's definitely a trend that we're at least I'm noticing in a few drama shows. Yeah, there's been multiple. It was it the entire like season of like Daredevil. There was um, one on TBS with the people of Earth. Like they would finish an entire season and they'd just be like, eh, nah, you know what? Yeah. yeah the so, same goes with the Book of Enchantment. The new Disney Plus uh, TV show that's uh, also not going forward after all the scripts being written. So mm. it's uh, it's not super fun. But on a more lighter, positive tone, it's amazing to see uh, their success across all formats and all genres. Yeah, I think they're really going to, <laughs> for the, like, what is it, the bingo card kind of thing, <laughs> <laughs> fill in all the, the X's and uh, they'll, they'll have worked on everything by you know, in another year or two. So um, wish them the best of luck on that show. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be amazing. And next up is an update from uh, our very own Gretchen Andrews from PT124, another person who came on the podcast to discuss uh, working and pitching across different formats and, uh, and genres uh, on Queen America, Grace and Frankie, as well as radio plays. So here is what Gretchen has been up to. 
Hi guys, this is Gretchen Enders coming at you from a closet in Los Feliz where I hope the sound is okay. I'm just checking in since last we spoke. I just finished up about a month and a half ago on a show that I couldn't really talk about when I was on the podcast, but now that it's been announced at Comic-Con, I can tell you it's called WandaVision. And it's for Marvel. It'll be on the Disney Plus uh, streaming platform. And uh, it's really special. I'm super proud of the work we all did. And to quote one of the leads of the show, uh, Elizabeth Olsen, it's gonna get weird. Um, so I hope you all enjoy it. And uh, now I'm just working on some development, a few original ideas, um, a couple series, and a feature. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, regarding the WGA and ATA standoff. To be quite honest, I'm coming from a very privileged position because I am with Verve, who signed the agreement. Um, I haven't really noticed personally a big change in my day-to-day uh, working life, but my friends that are with the big four, they're staying strong. And, you know, I'm a big believer in our union, and I believe that the leadership is really working in our best interests. So, I hope they uh, they continue along. But for my friends that are that aren't with agencies that have signed, you know, we're just really trying to introduce them to good people um, to get everybody out there and talking and hopefully uh, getting jobs that way. Regardless of this standoff, I think that's the most important thing to, to really do for your careers is to just introduce good people to each other. To We all want to work with good people. So to keep that going, I think it's second only probably to the actual writing is getting out there and making relationships and, and finding people that you want to work with. Uh, as far as a piece of advice, I have been pitching on uh, books that people have optioned, that production companies have optioned, and recently I had one that I was particularly passionate about. I was very excited to go in and pitch, and I did, and I I nailed it, the pitch. It was, it was really great, and um, I, I think my passion really came through. And then I heard that they went with a different writer. And I kind of took that in and just moved along. And I was telling a friend who is not in the business, but who was aware of of how much I was in love with this book, uh, that they had gone with a different writer. And she just couldn't understand how I was able to just put that aside and, and move forward. And I think that's because it didn't, it wasn't always easy for me to do that. Early on, that would have really stopped me in my tracks to hear a no like that. But you just got to plug away. You got to just keep on moving forward. So whenever you hear a no, I guess my piece of advice is, whenever you hear a no, just take that in and know that it's going to get easier. You just string those no's together and suddenly they don't hurt as much. And it doesn't make you stop working. You're just looking forward. So just uh, take every no as an opportunity to to grow. I hope that doesn't sound trite because, man, it took me a long way, a long, long time to get there. So um, thanks so much for checking in and best to everybody. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 
Thank you, Gretchen, for the update. I uh, really appreciate the the advice about uh, taking the nose. This is definitely something that we all struggle with, uh, especially when it comes to something that you really care about, whether it's an IP or a project that's being done by someone else and not you. I feel like it's hard not to take things personally in this business, but at the end of the day, it doesn't always come down to you. It's more about other things you can't really control. Yeah, I've definitely walked away from meetings, whether for staffing or pitches or whatever it happens to be thinking, oh man, I've got this in the bag that went so great. And then at the end of the day, you just don't get the job or you don't get the phone call. And that's something that, you know, we all have to kind of learn to deal with and, you know, not take personally. Like uh, Caroline Michelle said, you just need to learn to chill out. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm very excited for one division. That was definitely an IP that I was very excited to to see on screen. I'm assuming the, the run is going to be uh, very interesting in terms of uh, blending in uh, sort of reality and fiction, kind of like what Legion is doing is what I'm expecting from the shows i'm pretty excited to see uh, what uh what's going to happen yeah and my buddy cam squires who i wrote with on final space was also in the room with gretchen on that so i'm super super excited to to watch uh, what a couple of friends have contributed to the show and finally we have an update from ning Zhou from pt135 where she talked about coming up uh, as an assistant to showrunners and a writer's assistant and breaking into that first room so uh, let's take a listen and see what she's been doing lately what have I been up to since uh, we taped my episode? We finished out in the room on Ozark. Um, I've been doing some work on my own and trying to finish out a spec. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Ozark was nominated for an Emmy, which is great. We worked really hard in the room for that. And um, the cast and crew uh, also put in so much time and effort into doing everything. So it's a great feeling to be sort of recognized for everything. What are your tips for writers going on hiatus, you know, staying sane and productive? I basically keep the same hours that I do when we're in the room. So I go into the office at 930 and my ass is in that seat and I'm there until uh, 530 or 6. I will leave during the day for a meeting, come back and then, you know, kind of just keep plugging away. For me, having really scheduled time and location is super important. And I just know that if I'm working at home, I get super distracted. So <laughs> for me, it's important to sort of put myself in a situation where it's I have a workspace. This is where I go to work. And then um, when I'm done, I kind of, you know, shut down for the day. A piece of advice, something I've learned recently is really, especially now that I'm I'm working by myself and I'm not, you know, I don't have the minds of six or seven other people to, to sort of help me. In terms of figuring things out in a script, just reminding myself constantly that it's a process. And even though I run into um, dead ends or I run into points where I don't know what you know comes next, it's really reminding myself to stay patient and reminding myself that it is a process and that you kind of have to go down these dead ends in order to find a path that could work much better. One other thing, another tip that somebody had given me is our minds tend to get very negative. So they were just like, remind yourself of when you actually do something in a, in a day of work that feels really good, just remind yourself that you did, you did this one thing really well. And those positive things sort of add up. So that, you know, you're not always feeling like you are behind on something or that you haven't accomplished everything that you mean to accomplish. That kind of helps you keep going. 
that was a great update from Neng, and I can definitely relate to what she's talking about there in terms of staying on track with your writing and figuring out what's next. So glad to hear that she's doing well. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of having a routine and a set schedule, so I'm glad that uh, there's someone else out there who also values that. And uh, all her amazing advice about sort of understanding, oh, maybe I'm uh, I'm getting lost in the woods over this track, but it's not wasted time. I can actually go another direction, and uh, the lost time, quote-unquote, that I spent on this sort of dead end isn't really a dead end, or at least uh, isn't really wasted time if ultimately I get to an amazing solution at the end of the day. So that's great advice all around. And honestly, I mean, personally, and I'm sure, uh, Nick, you also feel that way. I, I'm really happy to see all our, our amazing guests succeed in all the endeavors. It's really tremendous to see uh, so many successes from so many people, really. Yeah, I think we can claim direct responsibility <laughs> for all of their career success. <laughs> We can call it right now. This is the paper team bump. I think <laughs> yes. that's what we're going to call it, the paper bump. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right, but for so, real, though, that's awesome. And I'm glad they're doing well. Absolutely. So uh, I'm uh, I'm excited to see where everybody's going to go. And uh, maybe in 150 episodes, we'll all be showrunners and, and showrunning this uh, very podcast. Yeah, uh, there's going to be a dramatized mini series about the creation mm. of Paper Team, and we will we'll run our own show. That sounds pretty exciting. I'm excited for that. <laughs> All right, let's go a little bit meta for once and talk about a podcast as if we haven't so far. Well, uh, we're going to mention all our successes in in a minute. uh, But first, like any celebratory episode, we got to look at some uh, fun stats. And it is actually quiz time. Paper quiz. Welcome to the 150th paper team quiz. Say it 10 times really fast. I can't really. This is the quiz where I pull up stats and ask Nick if he knows the very podcast is on. Alex is exploiting my uh, apathy towards all of this. Uh, your apathy towards our very own podcast. That's that's pretty sad to hear. Towards the numbers and the, the right. behind the scenes stuff. Well, let's talk about recording and, and publishing. And, and first of all, let me ask. After 149 episodes, how many hours have we published? I actually did the math on this just now, and I know the exact number. I would say our episodes are on average like 45 minutes. So let me take out my calculator. (laughs) So that would be roughly like 111, 112 hours. Interesting. The correct answer is 120 hours of content. So you were pretty close. Yeah. But uh, no cigar. Uh, that's not a win for me, sir. Okay, fine. You got to go within one hour. <laughs> Damn. All right. Uh, all right. Next up. On a monthly basis, how long do you think uh, a regular subscriber listens to our podcast? Let's say if there are about two or three hours of content a month. Yeah, I'm going to say two and a half hours. You would be spot on. Wow. Uh, if I had a bell, I'd ring it right now. <laughs> uh, so congratulations on getting one of two correct. All right. Next up. How many... Total hours of content are usually listened to every month, at least based on the iTunes uh, analytics. I didn't realize there was going to be math. Here's a clue. It's more than several hundreds. 1,500. Wow. That was, again, very spot on. Uh, it's actually uh, over 1,600, but I'll, I'll give it to you. Excellent. I'm pretty so, good at this. Yeah, clearly. You do know basic math. <laughs> so... Finally, let's talk about our top episodes. We've talked at length about uh, sort of our own favorite episodes and uh, other people's favorites. But what about 
the math, the stats, what uh, actual numbers say, tell us. I mean, statistics what... can prove anything, Alex. 40% of people know that. 40? <laughs> yes. It's a Homer Simpson quote. <laughs> Thank you, Homer. I know we went over top five, top five, multiple times. But I can tell you right now, this top five is not the same as two years ago when we did our very first top five in PT50. So let me ask you, in uh, no particular order, give me the five most popular episodes of Paper Team of all time as of today. I would say definitely number six, bringing the writer's room process home. That's historically been one of our best. Or Correct. Most that yeah. is still number two of all time. That's PT06. I'm going to say TV Pilot 101. That's PT30. You would be correct. That is our most popular episode still. Ooh, so I got number one and two. Let me think about this one now. This is where it gets harder. TV Spec 101. That would be incorrect. PT-34 is not in the top five. That's because specs don't matter. Uh, How dare you, sir? <laughs> specs do matter. The door's okay. over there. I'm guessing that some of our fellowship ones probably made it in there. So let's say the first one of those, the Disney ABC Writers Program, PT-130. Well, I can tell you this. One of the TV running program episodes shoot up or shot up to our top five, and that is the PT-130 episode, the ABC episode with Miss Christy Schutten. All right, so I'm three out of four. One more mm-hmm. guess. I'll give you another hint. The last two are more uh, classic episodes, shall we say. Although just for our listeners' sake, PT-132 and PT-33 are back-to-back next to PT-130. So uh, PT-132 and PT-133, which are uh, other, obviously, TV running uh, program episodes, are right behind ABC, almost neck and neck. All those episodes are really proving a very popular with our listeners. All right, I'm going to say maybe Networking 101. I think that's PT05. That would be wrong again. I'm going to give you one last shot. Episode number one, uh, Moving to LA and Things We Wish We Knew. That would be correct. Yeah. PT01 is uh, the fourth most popular episode of all time. The third most popular episode of all time is... Analyzing Great TV Pilots, that's PT-54, Case Studies of Alias, Community, Homicide, VOC, Scrubs, and Third Rock from the Sun. And in fact, now would be a great time to remind our listeners that if you enjoyed that episode, we did a second Analyzing Great TV Pilots exclusively for our Patreon subscribers at the story editor level and above where we tackled the pilots of Arrested Development, Breaking Bad, Friends, and Lost. So you can check that out at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And let's talk about our growth and not what's on Nick's back. Hey, <laughs> I told you that in private. <laughs> All right. Well, when we recorded our PT-99 special episode in July 2018, at the time, it was our most popular month of all time with nearly 7,500 downloads in 31 days. Well, since then, in a year, we've absolutely demolished, smashed that record multiple times, month over month. We are now regularly doing over 8,000 downloads a month on a basic basis. And our new record now stands from May of this very year with over 10,000 downloads. To put that into perspective, our very first month ever of August 2016 was 2,700 downloads over 10 episodes released. Our secret to smashing records is that we're always angry. (laughs) We're always publishing, I think you mean. That's what we do. We're just clicking send. Publishing angrily. Yes. (laughs) That is uh, pretty extraordinary. And uh, all of this could not be done without our listeners, really. 
because uh, who else is going to download? Not us, 10,000 yeah, times. I'm, I'm not going to sit there downloading 10,000 times. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you very much, everybody who tuned in. Um, I've, I've loved watching our community grow and our listeners uh, keep on tuning in and interacting with us. And especially now that we have the Patreon and the, uh, the Facebook group as well, it's been uh, really, really fulfilling. And on that note, let's talk about the very successes since you brought up the Facebook group as well as all the miscellaneous activities that we do. First of all, I mean, at the beginning of this year, we started our Patreon and uh, we've had uh, quite the success with Patreon with many supporters and, and subscribers. And honestly, without the Patreon, we would not be here today in the same way that with our listeners, we would not be here today. It really helps us at least break even on the podcast. Yeah, it's it's been fantastic, and we really hope that you've enjoyed all the exclusive content and things that we've been doing for Patreon. Uh, we're hoping to do more of that again in the future and uh, keep supporting you as you support us. Absolutely, and we also did many live events. I mean, uh, first of all, speaking of the Patreon, we did a, a mixer earlier this year. I'm sure we're going to do another one soon, and uh, many live events. Uh, we had uh, now three WannaCon panels at the very least. We had one a live 100th episode panel, and as we announced recently, we will be at Austin for the Austin Film Festival in October. Yeah, it's been incredible to keep uh, being able to go out there in the real world and record and, and meet our fans. So uh, hoping to do much more of that. And if you are a Patreon member, you'll usually be able to get exclusive kind of pre-sales towards those events as well. That's right. And uh, we also got to mention, obviously, the mentorship that led us to find Paul. Not that uh, we gave the paper bump to Paul necessarily, but it's amazing to see someone uh, succeed in the same way that all our past guests have succeeded. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to doing that again, too. We are going to continue the series of the TV running programs in future episodes, as well as possibly start other ones on uh, different topics. And we always love to hear your suggestions of topics, people, even places, things you want to learn more of. So you can always send those at ask at paperteam.co. And once again, like we can't say this enough, thank you to the listeners who are tuning in right now or the listeners who might tune in in the future and listen back to this episode. It really means so much to have your support. And it's it's the whole reason we're doing this is to be able to provide this advice to people and help them out. And also a very special thanks to our longtime editor, Alex Switsky, uh, for all the hard work that he does every single week, um, our various sponsors we've had over the years, and uh, certainly our Patreon supporters. Without you, like Alex said, we literally could not do the show. Yeah, we're really happy to see that our podcast has been able to provide so much value for newer writers, established writers, and uh, up-and-coming writers across uh, all uh, places. And uh, it's really humbling in, in many ways to see the success that uh, the podcast has had in large part because of you listening to this. And we hope that it's helped you in some small way on your journey as a TV writer. And on that note, as we mentioned multiple times now, we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other ones that we've done, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get exclusive episodes, cheat sheets, more of us, and we can keep producing a great show for you like all our past 150 episodes every week. We're going to do 150 episodes every week. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up. All right. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get the beefy show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 150. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, always send them to ask at paperteam.co. 
And what are we doing next week for our 151st episode? Well, it feels like an appropriate time because by popular demand, Paper Tease is back. We will be giving feedback on the teasers of your TV pilot. So send all of those into us at paperteam.co slash teaser if you want to be in the running for us to read your teaser out and give you feedback on air. The hype is real, even more than a click game bowl. This is like Paper Tease 2019. Let's get it on. You win or you die. See you next week. See you then.